The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Holy shit. It's going to be a fun ride today. Man, I forgot how much I love Depression-era gangster tales. The members of the Ma Barker gang, a.k.a. the Barker Carpus gang, they quickly evolved into and became more commonly known as were cold-blooded, thieving, kidnapping, cop-killing sons of bitches. They don't deserve to be romanticized. They were self-serving, ruthless dirtbags. I know that. But there is something darkly romantic about old-time bank robbers. You know, a, a criminal such as a rapist is an obvious fucking coward, holding down someone usually physically weaker than themselves, physically and psychologically violating someone they've drugged or tricked or are holding a weapon to, using them for their own sadistic physical pleasure. The nature of that crime to me is inherently evil. Same for pedophilia, same for most murders. Those crimes seem to me, and, and I think to most of us, as inhuman somehow which uh, partly explains I feel our fascination with them. How could someone do that? Theft, however, while also not morally justified, is so much more relatable because it's, it's so very human. We don't all, thank God, want to rape. However, we all do want money. Even if you don't consider yourself materialistic or monetarily driven, you still have bills to pay. Or, or if you don't somehow, then someone else is paying for your existence. And I hope you're grateful for them being at least somewhat financially motivated. And almost all of us have stolen something at some point in our lives. Maybe you haven't taken anything from a store, but have you ever bit-torrented a movie? Ever used someone else's username and password to watch something intended for paid subscribers only with no intention of ever paying yourself? Ever downloaded an album someone gave you on a thumb drive and listened to it over and over and then never paid for that? Well, welcome to the Thief Club. You might not think you're in, but you're in. You took something or you used something, you listened to or watched something that someone else created with the intention of having it sold. It belonged to them. It belonged to the people who chose to buy it. And I think the reason we're fascinated with bank robbers is, well, 
illegally downloading, say, a movie is pretty easy. It's a very low-risk crime. You're probably not going to get caught, and if you do, you're not going to get punished very severely. Robbing banks, very different. Anything but easy. People guard banks. People paid to guard banks. People with guns. People who can legally kill you if you try to take what belongs to the bank. And the Ma Barker, a.k.a. Barker Carpus Gang, robbed banks. A lot of banks. They did something that's very hard to do, and they did it over and over again. Coming into a large sum of money quickly. How many of us have had that fantasy? How many of us have daydreamed about hitting the lottery or finding some briefcase full of unmarked $100 bills? That would be the best. Well, the Barker boys didn't just fantasize about that. They did it. They didn't find money. They didn't win it. They just went out and took it. And they got away with it for years. They robbed bank after bank after drugstore, after hardware store, clothing store, Chevy dealership, jewelry store, still more banks. They committed more robberies than the much more famous Dillinger gang. The Dillinger gang was active for less than one year. The Barker Carpus gang was active from 1931 to 1935. They bought a custom bank robbing car off of Al Capone's car man. They got drunk with babyface Nelson in Reno, got in a barroom debate with future president Harry Truman in Kansas City. President FDR called them out on national radio during one of his famous fireside chats, called them an attack on everything we hold dear. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover made it his personal mission to take them down. Only four Depression-era gangsters were ever given the title of public enemy number one by the FBI. John Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, Pretty Boy Floyd, and Alvin Creepy Carpus. And only Carpus, the man who ran with Ma and those Barker boys, was ever taken alive. And today, we're going to suck deep on the story of this infamous gang and their leader, Ma Barker, a woman J. Edgar Hoover described as the most vicious, dangerous, and resourceful criminal brain of the last decade. But was she really? Was she really their leader? Or was she just along for the wild ride? Keep listening and find out on today's Shoot 'em Up, Put Your Hands in the Air edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers. Welcome to the Cult of Curious. This is Time Suck. I am the rare cult leader who is not trying to bone any of the cult members outside of my wife, of course. I am uh, always trying to bone her uh, to some degree. Uh, I am the master sucker, Dan Cummins. Hail Nimrod. Excited for today's show. Excited for some announcements. Uh, Some seriously cool. No, no, I'm going to say some seriously dope ass summer merch. Just hit the shop. Talking about that in a second. Uh, Thank you so much. For all the recent ratings and reviews online, nothing spreads the suck better than ratings and reviews and word of mouth. Oh, man, I appreciate you guys doing that. Thanks to uh, whatpods.com for including Time Suck in their new list of the 64 funniest podcasts in the English-speaking world. We landed at number 15. That's pretty awesome. Uh, It was an honor just to be on the list. There's so, so many podcasts out there. Uh, Time Suck landed ahead of so many long-standing, very funny, and very popular podcasts. Very honored. And Time Suck is brought to you once again by Amerigas, America, Gas, Bald Eagles, Barbecues, Willie Nelson, John Wayne, Hot Dogs, Campfire Chili. I think of all these things when I think of Amerigas. It's patriotism in gaseous form. So get your grill on this summer with Amerigas Propane Exchange and do it on the new free American-made Weber grill you've won thanks to Time Suck. Register to win this grill at mytimesuckgrill.com. Enter your name and email address, and that's it. The contest runs through the 4th of July, 
so you have no excuse not to try and win a brand new Weber Spirit 2 E210 two-burner propane gas grill, $400 grill for free. And how do you get your meat paws on some Amerigas right now for the grill you already own? Well, you pick up propane tanks at your local Home Depot, Dollar General store, and many other stores, you silly goose, nationwide. And how do you win that Weber grill? Again, sign up, mytimesuckgrill.com. Winner will be announced on Friday, July 6th. Link in today's episode description. Godspeed and hail Nimrod. Now, for that exciting merch news, the summer line is here. I know pickings have been pretty slim since the Memorial Day sale. I know uh, sizes have been low, and by low, I mean completely out of almost everything. Now we're restocked. So much good shit. First up, seventh generation Time Suck Tea. A Danger Brain Black on Black. Unisex Crew Neck Classic. Cult of the Curious on the front. Time Suck on the back. A little more subtle than previous designs. And what do we use for fabric on this one? A classic mashup of Koala Anus and Chinchilla Labia. 200% of each. The Koala Anus is somehow domestic this time. I don't know how that works. The Chinchilla Labia is imported. Exotic. And the result is a shirt so soft and beautiful, it's hard not to immediately come when you put it on. Next up, 8th generation summer tea. A Tahiti Blue Cult of the Curious banger with some 90s pop. 300% imported dolphin tit skin. I didn't know that dolphins had tits. I didn't know they had skin. But my fabric importer assures me both of those are things. And that it's very rare and sought after. And that it's some of the softest and sexiest material on earth. Each summer shirt comes with a free boner and or vaginal moistness. Next up. You've asked since last summer and it's finally here. The first generation time suck tank top. A royal blue stunner. Time to bring out the guns. Time to showcase the tatas. Nimrod is so pleased with this tank top. It's 50% cotton and 100%. No, I, I'm sorry. 1,000%. My, my, uh, my, my uh, exotic material important. Well, he would have been so mad at me. It's 1,000% baby deer, a.k.a. fawn, inner thigh fur and skin. You ever rubbed a young deer's inner thigh? It's sublime. And now those baby deer legs can rub you every time you wear this beauty. What else? Fucking koozies, that's what. Black and silver, Cult of the Curious koozies, dark blue and gold, Nimrod koozies, blue and gold Chikatilo koozies. What is big deal? I, I like cold drink. Uh, just, uh, enjoy cold drink and soft cuck. Red and sexy, blood orange Lucifina co- uh, koozies, hail Lucifina, black and lime green secret suck koozies, only for space lizards. Keep your drinks cold, keep your mind sharp. Koozies believe to give their owners somewhere around 500 extra IQ points. That's what my science team tells me. And by my science team, I mean my two doodles, Penny Poopers, and Ginger Bell. And is that all? No. You've asked for over a year, and magnets also here. Three-inch by three-inch, sick black logo-based circular magnet, and a seven-inch by one-and-three-quarter-inch rectangular magnet. Both guaranteed to spread the suck. Both guaranteed to block reptilian mind-control signals beaming down from the moon. Both guaranteed to annoy the shit out of flat earthers. All right. Quick tour announcements before diving into the Mob Arca gang. I hope you enjoy that merch. Thanks to Washington, D.C. Time Suckers who came to the draft house this past weekend. I was given a few more challenge coins by some veterans. Kick-ass highway patrolmen. Man, thank you, veterans, for protecting us from foreign harm. And thank you, police officers, for protecting us from domestic harm. You don't get enough credit. Adam Dayton came out, the man, myth, legend, who created those beautiful hand-painted cornhole boards, sent them into the suck dungeon. Uh, speaking of corn, this weekend... 
June 15th and 16th, the Flat Earth Tour rolls into Des Moines, Iowa. Des Moines, Iowa. Maybe it's a funny bone. July 12th to the 14th. That's the next stop. Orlando Improv live podcast on the 15th. And it's almost sold out. Uh, it, it actually may be sold out. Only a handful of tickets left, if any. Grab those quick. Uh, link in today's episode description, of course. Comedy Store in La Jolla, California, July 20, 22nd. Dayton, Ohio. Uh, funny Bone, July 27th to 28th. More dates. Portland, Denver, Tacoma, Spokane, and more. DanCummins.tv. Thanks for listening. Uh, I know announcements can be annoying sometimes, but I try to make them fun. And sponsors, man, live dates, merch, keep the suck coming. It's Ma Barker time. America in the 1920s. Let's talk about it. Let's learn some shit. Let's get smarter. Uh, Let's suck on the rise of organized crime and gangsters. Why did organized crime take off in the 20s? Well, uh, thanks to good old prohibition. Those teetotalers. Never saw that coming, did they? Ratified on January 29th, 1919, the 18th Amendment prohibited the sale, possession, or consumption of libations. It uh, went into effect about a year later, by which time no fewer than 33 states had already enacted their own statewide prohibition legislation. Uh, in October 1919, Congress passed the National Prohibition Act, which provided guidelines for the federal enforcement of prohibition. It was championed by Representative Andrew Volstead of Mississippi. Chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, the legislation became commonly known as the Volstead Act. And prohibition was a foolish, stupid plan. A great example of trying to legislate based on subjective morality instead of logic. Right? Alcohol, always been an extremely popular drug. Always, always has been in America. It's part of the culture. Always been the number one drug of choice for many Americans, woven into the fabric of the nation, woven into the cultural fabric of Pretty much all the European nations on which America was built. Uh, Poor and rich alike have always enjoyed some spirits to ease their troubles or enhance their celebrations. And the timing of Prohibition was especially terrible. America had just returned from World War I, a war that had left over 16 million total people dead. That's uh, soldiers and civilians. Over 300,000 Americans dead, missing, or wounded. Countries with strong cultural ties to America had lost millions. World War I ended on November 11th, 1918, just over two months before the Prohibition Act was ratified. The nation was still grieving, and a lot of people wanted a stiff drink. And where there's demand, there's always going to be supply. Right, Bootleggers sprung up to keep the spirits flowing. With so much money to be made in bootlegging, fortunes started being made with increased competition. Competition led to violence. Violence led to organization to not get killed. Organization led to widespread, frantic, and public masturbation became a real problem. Who could blame the hundreds of thousands of men and women who were now openly masturbating in the streets to ease their troubles without a bold cold beer or a glass of wine to keep them, you know, calm. It was only a matter of time before this happened. Of course, that's nonsense. Can you imagine if that did happen though? Uh, would that be a part of the history uh, taught in schools? Uh, yes, Jonathan, what's your question? Uh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Anderson. Did you say hundreds of thousands of men and women started jerking and diddling themselves in the streets? Uh, John, I said masturbating, Jonathan. And if, and if you want to turn this into something crude, I'm happy to send you down to Principal Sanchez's office. As I was saying, between 1919 and 1933, 4.3 million Americans were arrested for furiously and openly masturbating, specifically in the middle of the streets of this great nation. 
Uh, no, but seriously, who could who could uh, supply speakeasies most consistently uh, through bribing officials and killing or intimidating anyone who tried to interfere with their new business? Gangs, organized gangs. So now new booze-selling gangs are popping up in New York, Chicago, Boston, you know, other other places romanticized in the press. What they were doing wasn't uh, really seen that as that bad by a lot of Americans, you know? A lot of Americans were, were drinking the booze they supplied. They were happy to have the gangs, you know, or, or they wanted to be drinking that booze. Then when FDR ended Prohibition in 1933, it's rumored he immediately celebrated with a martini, which was his favorite drink. And I highly doubt he had not had another martini since 1918. I, I mean, maybe, but ah, I, I bet, you know, even, even high-ranking politicians were uh, sneaking some booze. You know, so now in the 20s, you have these kids growing up idolizing these new gangsters that, again, are romanticized in the, in the press. It has been said by many that gangsters were America's most famous celebrities in the 20s. You know, kids such as the Barker kids are reading about them, hearing about their exploits, wanting to be them. And then when the Great Depression hits, following the stock market freefall of October 1929, you have young men old enough to hit, hit the workforce now who find out that there is no fucking workforce anymore. Not like there used to be. Unemployment would actually hit 20 Five percent in 1933. Holy shit. A quarter of the workforce completely unemployed. Can you imagine that? I mean, currently the United States has an unemployment level somewhere around 3.9%. That's as of April uh, 2018. So over six times the amount of unemployed people per capita. So now you get a lot of poor people who have grown up romanticizing gangsters who are more poor than they've ever been. They need money. They can't find work. And, and you still have organized crime. It didn't end with prohibition. It just found new ways to make money. And with the Barker boys, uh, one way was to form a, a new gang and, and rob a shit ton of banks. Uh, now that we have a little context, we're going to dive into the meat of today's tale in just a bit. Uh, first, I want to let you know about a cool old movie I found on YouTube about Ma Barker and her gang called Ma Barker's Killer Brood. The poster for this B flick is so good, I immediately bought it. I bought it. I bought a cheap replica of it. Uh, I found out that originals exist, but they're a little too expensive for my taste. Uh, it's fucking awesome. I just I love those old fifties and early sixties movie posters, especially for the B movies. And in the comments below this movie, I found today's idiots of the internet. Idiots of the internet. Okay, again, uh, today's comments uh, come from the full length. Ma Barker's Killer Brood movie on YouTube. Uh, great old black and white B-movie gangster flick starring Lorene Tuttle. You may remember her as Gladys Peabody from the Beverly Hillbillies or as Vinnie Day from Life with Father. Odds are you, you do not remember her. I did not remember her. Uh, in the opening scene, some poor victim of Ma Barker and her gang is getting gasoline splashed on him and then he's set on fire dramatically. And then some words come on the screen with the music you hear now played underneath it. This story is true, documented from police records, newspaper files, and eyewitness reports. It is the sadistic career of Catherine Clark Barker, master of crime, who taught her sons that the only crime was to get caught. So cunning was this evil genius that in almost two decades of robbery, kidnapping, and murder, she herself was never once arrested. Ma Barker, mother to the underworld and public enemy. Mother to the underworld. I love it. Uh, and then in the comments below, some idiots turn the commentary uh, political. Uh, user Mr. Shobar posts, 
Ma Barker, the Sarah Palin of her time. <laughs> and immediately, Kenneth Wallace is butthurt. So Kenneth Wallace, I'm sure some man who's never met her, uh, says, no comparison, you liberal Democrat socialist communist. <laughs> liberal Democrat socialist communist. Wow, little anger. Little anger towards the left. Couldn't handle one little Palin jab. Uh, Mr. Shobar comes back with, go brush your tooth. And I know that's an easy joke, but I still always like it. Uh, and Kenneth Wallace doesn't come back with anything. So maybe he maybe he really did, you know, uh, take him up on, on the advice and he did go brush his tooth. Polished it right up. Uh, if you do have only one tooth, I do think you should probably keep it clean and shiny. Or maybe that is a terrible idea. Maybe that would just draw more attention to your one tooth. You know, create a lot of, uh, you know, unwanted fascination around it. Like, how did he lose all of his other teeth when he's clearly taken such great care of that one? Uh, next comment, uh, down goes back the other way. Uh, Panzer Marsh posts, Ma Barker, the Hillary of her time. Oh, touche. Tit for tat. Uh, Moron Videos 1940 replies with, you make no sense with that statement. And that reply works for, I would say, about uh, uh, 30 to 50% of all YouTube comments. Uh, Gabe Guerin posts, Go Trump! These, these guys are clearly looking for any excuse just to throw in some liberal or conservative grandstanding. Uh, and the two unnecessary political comments and the replies underneath them are after all that. User Alter Ego asks, Is there a nest of you fuckwits somewhere? I love that. Uh, if you find that nest, Alter Ego, please destroy it and let me know so I can celebrate your great deed. Uh, user Doc Harris is sick of the political comments, and he's also quite possibly insane, posting, The election is over, gentlemen. Okay, let it rest. But if you want to hot dog, then guess what? You're in the circus. And the ringleader is Dundonald and his good troop. And oh, just for the record, I wasn't a Hillary supporter either. If she was one, it would have been way worse. God bless his country, because this clown will have people running to Christ for sure. Huh? Donald and his good troop will have us running to Christ? And you want to hot dog? Your people are going to go in the circus if they hot dog? I, I think I get the gist of what you're saying, Doc. I just think you should run your future comments through an editor. At least a, a friend, you know, maybe you should look over them before you, before you post them. Does, does this make sense? Uh, no, Doc, it does not. What, what point are you trying to make exactly with the hot dog slash circus analogy? Uh, but yeah, okay. So user uh, Eternal uh, Gunhauser cracked my shit up with this post. He says, my name, no, he says, my dog's name is Ma Barker. She is badass, just like this bitch. I fucking love it. What a great name for a dog, Ma Barker. I wonder how many other Ma Barkers are out there. Ma Barker and Bojangles. What a terrific twosome that would be. Uh, user Jack Hyde also really cracks me up, saying, a little unknown fact was not, was that not all Barker's sons were killed. <laughs> One survived and went on to become the greatest game show host, Bob Barker. How great would that be if that was true? If longtime Price is Right host, Bob Barker, was the son of Ma Barker. From bank robbing to Plinko, today on A&E Biographies, the story of Bob Barker. Uh, user or, or spam bot, ND87 shoehorned some, some spam into the comment section, some idiocy, saying, uh, I scanned some of the replies on here. However, I believe that this is a first-rate YouTube video. My brother simply wishes to become the best with the ladies. He figured out a lot from Master Attraction. Google it if you want pretty good emails on picking up girls. 
the strategies for seducing girls through nightclubs from Master Attraction got him his first sex in around four years. Got him his first sex. I really, I was really bothered though because I heard them all. What the fuck are you talking? I love the first two sentences and the pivot in between them. This is a first rate YouTube video. That totally reads as, I did not watch a second of this. And then immediately pivoting to, my brother simply wishes to become the best with the ladies. Which definitely reads to me as, I wrote this in Nigeria and I'm quite desperate for your dollars. Uh, I checked out masterattraction.com, you know, after, after that hell of an endorsement, you know, first sex in four years. And uh, I left masterattraction.com after reading the first sentence. It says, welcome to Master Attraction Formula. I'm Jake. I help men get girls. That's creepy. Men get girls? Wow, dude. How about men get women? Uh, when you phrase it, when you phrase it as men getting girls, you sound, you sound like your website should be renamed to jailbait.com. Uh, and then I thought, is that a real website? And I literally, I so, so stupid. I started to type in jailbait and they're like, what are you fucking doing? You moron. Like, uh, I'm never going to find the answer to that question. I don't care if I don't care if it's out there. Uh, I'm not going to look because, uh, the answer is not worth having FBI agents come to my home to confiscate my hard drive and take away my kids. Uh, okay. One more. User Hilda Martin does some very odd hookup trolling. I just thought this was funny because it was so weird, like the, the where she chose to do this. She asks, so do vampires make friends? I think they're sexiest, or is that funny? Okay. Uh, I feel like we now know three things about Hilda. One, she can't spell very well. She spells funny as F-O-N-N-I-E. I'm pretty sure she meant funny. Two, she finds vampires to be sexy. She said sexiest. I think they're sexiest. I, I think she just, you know, anybody's sexy. And then three, she's so desperate to find someone else who shares her vampire fetish that she's dropping this comment under a 1960 Ma Barker movie that has nothing to do with vampires at all in any way. No, nor is it probably going to be like a movie that would draw other vampire, you know, lovers or fetish havers. What are you doing, Hilda? If you're going to troll for some vampire dick, get out of the Ma Barker comment thread. Move over to one of the Underworld movies or maybe Blade. Even the Vampire in Brooklyn and Buffy the Vampire Slayer threads are better than this. Know your audience, Hilda. Know your audience and maybe use spell check. And that's all for today's Idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. If you do watch the movie we just talked about, uh, know that the depiction of Ma in that movie was a popular one after her arrest for, for decades. Uh, the public narrative around Ma Barker was that she raised her boys to be criminals and that then she was the mastermind of the gang and that she was a hard-drinking, hard-living woman who, who probably was handy with a gun. And uh, after she was gunned down herself, you know, the public was led to believe that she was an active participant in the crimes the gang committed. Scholars have more recently come to highly doubt this depiction, though. Uh, thinking it was more likely she just loved her boys in spite of their criminal dealings, uh, you know, and enabled them for sure. Uh, probably at the very least tacitly condoned what they did, but was not like the mastermind. If this modern uh, analysis is true, though, uh, why would she accompany them on the crime spree? I do find that unusual. No other gangs at the time had their mom along for the ride, or or I don't think since. Uh, I'm guessing the truth about Ma Barker lies somewhere between her being a mastermind and some, you know, and her being an innocent bystander. Uh, you make your own judgment after marching through today's time suck timeline. 
Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. On October 17th, 1873, Arizona Donnie Clark was born in Ash Grove, Green County, Missouri. Uh, she's listed as going by Kate in some accounts. Catherine sometimes went by Rita. Damn, damn gangsters and their nicknames and aliases. Uh, she'd become commonly known as Ari. What a cool name, actually. Arizona. I, I really liked it. Donnie, on the other hand, uh, unfortunate. Interesting choice uh, as a middle name for a woman. I feel like that's almost as bad as like Hank or Dick. This is my daughter, Kimberly Hank Johnson, and this is my other daughter, Michelle Dick Johnson. Uh, yeah, that doesn't have, <laughs> don't have good rings. Uh, at the time of Ari's birth, Ashgrove only had four to 500 residents, um, about the size of my hometown, Riggins, Idaho, only has about 1400 residents today, a little farm town, about 20 miles Northeast of Springfield, Missouri, a little over 150 miles South of Kansas city. As a child, Ari was described as God fearing and a devout Presbyterian. She was also described as tough and ill tempered. And uh, she loved tales of 19th century gangsters like uh, Jesse and Frank James. The Jesse James gang, man, got to suck those dirty cowboys one of these days, which is a sentence that could be uh, interpreted very differently out of the context of this podcast. Uh, Ari is said to have been devastated when Jesse was shot in the back and killed while he was straightening a picture on the wall in 1882. When she was just eight years old, Jesse's killer, Robert Bob Ford, would be reviled in history as the dirty little coward whose shot laid poor Jesse in his grave. So Ma Barker, you know, had a fascination with gangsters long before the 1920s. She loved those old Wild West stagecoach and train robbers that, the, again, the press also romanticized. In 1892, uh, Ari does what 19-year-olds did back then if they hadn't done so already. She marries uh, somebody. She marries uh, George Barker before she's 20, before she becomes an old maid. Did anyone uh, ever play that, the, the card game, Old Maid, when they were a kid, by the way? I used to play it with my great-grandma Stella Berman, born in 1915. Great woman. Uh, she traveled by wagon as a kid, helped raise three generations of my family. Uh, probably w was fascinated by tales of Ma Barker and Barker Carpers gang when she was a teen. Uh, love you, Grandma Stell. Anyways, Ari and George lived near Aurora, Missouri, where George worked as a sharecropper. He's described as mild-mannered, a soft-spoken man. Said that Ari was the uh, one that ran the family. She wore the pants in most media depictions. Poor George is portrayed as a as a total doormat that Ari walked all over. Uh, Aurora, by the way, isn't that much bigger than Ash Grove. 7,500 people in the southwest corner of Missouri, former mine town, that transformed into an agricultural community 30 miles southwest of Springfield. And that would be the birthplace of the key members of the Barker gang. George and Ari Barker had four sons, all born in Aurora, Missouri. Their first son, Herman, was born October 30th, 1893. Then Lloyd William, called Red, was born next on March 14th, 1897. Uh, Red was named after the fact that he had a red penis, much like a dog's, uh, which is unfortunate. Arthur Raymond, called Doc, was born January 4th, 1899. Frederick George Freddy was born uh, December 12th, 1901. And I did make up that shit about the dog's dick. I hope you know that. Guessing he got the nickname Red because he had red hair. Uh, if he didn't have red hair, but did have a red dick, you'd think he'd, he'd really fight to accept that nickname. I know I would. If I had, if I had a red dick, like, like a bright red dick, like a dog's, and people found out and wouldn't stop calling me red, I would run away. Uh, I'd leave my family, have to start a new life somewhere, you know, get a more, get a more respectable nickname, something like Ace, or Snake, 
I, I'd even take Skippy over, over Red in that situation. I'd take Goober over Red as in a dog's Red Rocket Red. Anyway, sometime around 1903, the family moved to Webb City, a small 11,000-person suburb of Joplin, Missouri. Joplin itself having about 50,000 people. Joplin, if you'll recall, also was the location of Bonnie and Clyde's infamous apartment hideout uh, that they left after having a shootout with law enforcement in 1933. Joplin, 70 miles due west of Springfield, and from the from the look of the map, less than five miles from the state line with Kansas, and uh, you know, less than 10 miles, probably closer to five miles uh, from the Oklahoma state line. Guessing that's what made the town so popular in the days of prohibition and depression era gangsters, when all you had to do to escape being chased by the cops was just make it across the state line. You know, we talked about the importance of that, uh, those state lines and, and pulling off these heists in the Bonnie and Clyde suck. You know, to refresh your memory, if you're a longtime sucker, essentially not, not all states had passed a form of the Uniform Act on Fresh Pursuit in the early 30s, which allowed state police to cross state lines when pursuing a person or person suspected of committing a felony. Back then, as long as the feds specifically weren't chasing you, you know, and that was rare, making it to the next state was, was almost like making it out of the country when it came to being pursued by law enforcement which would make it a lot easier to be a criminal, man. Get a hideout on the state line and you just have to make it a few miles to start a new life and get away with it. But uh, but I digress. We're talking about the childhood of the Barker boys. Truth is, we don't know a lot about the Barker's early family life. Uh, we know in addition to working as a sharecropper that George would work as an ore buyer for the Queen Jack Mine and the Prime Western Smelter Company around Joplin. Uh, we know the boys attended Webb grade school and we know that Herman gained a reputation as a prankster at school and that he once rode a horse through the front door of a local saloon in imitation of his idol, Jesse James. And one can only surmise he came to idolize Jesse James because his mother also idolized him, teaching her boys to love outlaws and bank robbers. In 1910, the oldest boy, Herman, has his first encounter with the law. Uh, that's, pretty, that's pretty crazy that he just you know rode a horse uh, through this, into a saloon, by the way. Uh, yeah. So clearly he was, he was, he was ballsy. And then, uh, yeah. And then he gets arrested for petty theft, 1910, but released to his mother after she begs authorities not to incarcerate him. And then on March 5th, 1915, five years later, he's arrested for highway robbery and Ari again throws a public tantrum and is somehow able to convince local authorities to relinquish Herman to her care again. And, and man, can anyone say enabler? She made, she makes the wrong call here again. Let your kid go to jail for a bit when the stakes are low, when they're young. They don't have to spend much time behind bars, you know? They don't, don't have to be on the permanent record. Still have time to change the course of their lives. What lesson is Herman learning? That he can get arrested and have Ma bail him out. That's not a good lesson. And, and how strong was Ari's will in order for her to convince local authorities to let her son off for highway robbery? He's 21 years old now, not 15 this time. Uh, I don't think you can pull off that shit today. Like, good luck talking uh, a judge into letting your 21-year-old come live with you instead of going to prison for highway robbery. After this arrest... Uh, Ari allegedly tells her neighbors that her sons are marked. You know, she tell them, uh, that the police, they just won't stop picking on my boys around here. So, uh, you know, uh, pretty sure they'd, they'd stop getting uh, picked on Ari. If, if you, uh, you know, convince them to stop taking other people's shit. That's, that's usually how that works. Ma grew so furious with the way she felt law enforcement was picking on her sons that she demanded that her, uh, demanded that her husband, George, move the whole family to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where her own family had already previously moved. Her, her stepdad was actually working in Tulsa as a police officer at this time, maybe, uh, maybe uncle, uncle, uh, what's uncle? No, I guess not uncle. I guess stepdad would go easy on the boys. Maybe, you know, let them take, uh, let them take what they wanted. Like a good cop in 1914. Uh, wait, I, I kind of just jumped back there. 
right around right around when when he uh 1915 sorry 1915 i put down the wrong number 1915 the barker family does move to tulsa uh doormat george initially gets a job as a laborer he later worked for the spring water company like a sucker getting a job like it like a sucker ma and the boys they don't work they just they take uh shortly after making it to tulsa with the boys with a number of other juvenile delinquents they formed the Central Park Gang, the Barker Boys, you know, know, the teen group uh, of hooligans would include numerous members of the later Barker Carpus Gang. In 1916, Herman is arrested again. He's arrested in Joplin on a multitude of burglary charges this time, including the July burglary of Hawkins and Miller Jewelry Store in Springfield. Due to his prior record, he's sentenced to 40 years in the Missouri State Penitentiary. Mom is not talking officials out of sending him away this time. But he does manage to escape. He escapes incarceration and flees to Montana where he immediately starts committing more crimes. So much for the theory that he was just getting picked on in Joplin. Uh, In October of 1916, under the alias Burt Lavender, he's arrested, Herman is arrested in Billings, Montana for burglary, grand larceny, larceny, excuse me, and sentenced to six to 12 years in the Montana State Penitentiary at Deer Lodge. You can actually visit this prison now if you want. It's called the Old Prison Museum. I've driven by once in my, my earlier Montana travels. And uh, it's pretty cool, uh, pretty cool looking place. Burt Lavender, great alias, by the way. He, he had fun with that one. That sounds fancy. I wonder what other aliases were considered that didn't make the cut. Maybe like Lawrence Cumberbund. You can call me Nathaniel Haberdash. Turd Ferguson is, uh, is what I will be known by. <laughs> July 4th, 1918. Another one of Ma's brood, 19-year-old uh, Arthur Doc Baker gets arrested for having stolen a government car on June 26th in Tulsa. Man, damn, damn coppers are picking on him too. Just, you know, everybody's, kids keep getting picked on. Really cramping his style. He somehow manages to escape, flees to Joplin, where he stays until he's recaptured there in 1920, returned to Tulsa. Again, manages to escape. If you'll recall from the old Bonnie and Clyde suck, man, really easy to escape from jail back then compared to now. Uh, jails were overcrowded, understaffed. Guards were undertrained, underpaid. Security cameras, non-existent. Electronic locks, not a thing. People just literally walked out of prison fairly often. Or they would dig out, climb over a fence, sneak away from a labor camp, you know, break their chain on a chain gang, walk away. And uh, and then again, they could just sneak off to a neighboring state and start a new life, which is often often still a criminal life. They usually just ended up getting apprehended a little bit later. Uh, August 17th, 1918, Lloyd Red Wing, Barker, enlisted in the Army in Tulsa just a few months before the end of World War One. Old Dog Dick, old Red Rocket, serves as a cook with the 162nd Depot Brigade, 87th Division, and is honorably discharged with the rank of sergeant in February of 1919. So he's kind of turning his life around. Uh, But then in January 1921, using the alias Claude Dale, Doc is arrested for the attempted burglary of the bank, or of a bank in Muskegee, uh, Muskegee, ah, fucking, uh, Muskogee, Muskogee, I didn't look it up, Oklahoma. One of, one of these fucking many terrible words that, that show up in these scripts. Uh, Muskogee, I think is how you say it. It's M-U-S-K-O-G-E-E. I uh, missed that one in my prep. Doc was released a short time later and then was uh, soon implicated in serious, uh, more serious trouble. The Barker boys, man, if they weren't in jail, they just could not stop causing trouble. Tulsa's new Catholic hospital, St. John's, under construction. And on the night of August 26, 1921, Three men break into the building while it's under construction, rob the office safe right after it shows up there. Uh, They're interrupted by the night watchman, Thomas J. Sherrill, whom they kill while fleeing the scene. Soon after, Volney Davis and Doc are arrested and charged for Sherrill's murder. 
Ma is definitely not keeping her boy out of jail this time. They're convicted and sentenced to life in prison at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary in McAllister. And this time, Doc does not escape. He actually makes his peace with his imprisonment. Largely because while Ma is not able to get him out of jail, she is able to make his stay a little more comfortable by uh, buying him a subscription to his favorite comic book, a uh, comic extremely popular, as you know, in the early 20th century that many of you are already familiar with. It's called Pootie and Juju. And uh, Doc was especially fond of issue number 113 of the original Pootie and Juju run called Pootie and Juju's Prison Break. Now, in this bee's knees issue, Pootie accidentally robs a bank. When he finds the security guard's gun laying on the floor next to the guard, falling out of his holster when the guard fell asleep in his chair, not familiar with gun etiquette, Pootie absentmindedly points the pistol at the guard in a clumsy attempt to give it back to him, and the guard awakens to find himself staring down the barrel of his own Colt 45. He instinctively throws his hands in the air and yells, Jeepers, are you zoozled? Don't shoot! Which causes the rest of the bank to panic, including Pootie who waves the gun around the room as he tries to explain himself. I ain't doing nothing now, everyone. I'm just trying to give the guard what's rightfully his. Well, this is misinterpreted by the branch manager, who thought that Pootie meant he was going to give the guard, uh, who's in tears by this point, a belly full of lead. And he yells, don't shoot. You'll get your lettuce. And then Pootie, who did come to make an account withdrawal, thought the manager was fooling around and just joked back saying, you slay me, small bills, and fast before someone gets hurt. Upon hearing this, some other customer, some terrified dame squeals, startling Pootie into firing the gun. Next thing you know, he's serving 5 to 10 in Leavenworth. Juju, not happy with any of this. Juju can't afford the mortgage on the little house they just went 50-50 on. So Juju decides to sneak a file into prison to get Pootie out so Pootie can pay you know, Pootie's share of the mortgage. Pootie explains that the whole thing was one big, big misunderstanding, but Juju's not hearing it. Too little, too little, Pootie. And then Juju slides Pootie a file under the table. Pootie asks, how am I supposed to sneak this into my cell, Juju? And Juju hisses, put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. Pootie's completely befuddled. What kind of phone is Balonis you squawking about, Juju? Juju nods towards Pootie's hiney, towards his rear end. Put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. Oh, says Pootie before quietly sneaking the file up into his or her anus. Turns out a lunchbox can refer to something other than a place to keep your lunch. It can also be the place your lunch ends up after you eat it. Pootie sneaks the file up and in, then later files down some bars in, in a cell, escapes just in time to get Pootie's job back and help Juju keep from foreclosing the house, the end. And Doc loved that issue. And if you're new to the show... Uh, that comic only exists in the time stick world. Please don't spend a lot of time Googling it. And that's about as weird as we get. And and you made it through it. You powered through it if you're still listening. And so now uh, we are going to head back to our regularly scheduled programming. While Doc sends to life in prison, that part's real. He wouldn't actually spend his whole uh, life there. He, he, he will get out. He will rejoin the timeline in about 10 years. Uh, but back to, to, to 1921. Also in 1921, not the best year for the Barker family. Old second-born Red is arrested for vagrancy in Tulsa and then arrested again for robbing a mail courier in Baxter Springs, Kansas, and he gets sentenced to 25 years in Leavenworth with Pootie. No, but for real, he goes to Leavenworth. Uh, he enters Leavenworth on January 16, 1922. He remained there until 1938. Once out, he would re-enlist in the military 
serve as a cook again in World War II this time. He would get honorably discharged again. Then he'd move to Denver, get married, have a daughter, get a job as an assistant manager, and live happily ever after. Not quite. Uh, he did walk away from a life of crime. He did end up in Denver, did get married, did have a daughter, did get a decent job, was unable to escape the violent death that would be the fate of almost every member of his family. The one Barker boy who would eventually walk away from a life of crime ended up still getting his head nearly blown off with a point-blank shotgun blast in 1949. His wife shot him when he came home from work, and then she would spend the rest of her life in an insane asylum, not sure what happened to their child. Uh, clearly, Red's tale has now been told, and, and he is out of the timeline. Okay, so now we head back again to the early 20s. Red is still alive, but in prison in Kansas. Herman is in prison in Montana. Doc is in prison in Oklahoma. And the youngest Barker boy, Fred, is the only son not currently incarcerated. Man, Ari and George must have been just so proud of the fam. Hey, George, how are the kids? Good, real good, real good. Herman's staying out of trouble up in Montana. Uh, Red's keeping to himself in Kansas. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Doc, he's enjoying a little uh, rest and relaxation. McAllister, Fred's just trying to decide which brother to bunk up with, you know, here soon. You know, they're, they're fine. They're good. Uh, Red, the only free brother, is doing his best to, uh, to get locked up as well. On September 1st, 1922, Fred and two other men rob a mail carrier who's delivering $14,200 worth of a mine's payroll. And then on January 6th, 1923, Fred and another man rob a backroom poker game at Slim's repair shop. They net 600 bucks, but police are informed that Fred was behind it. He's arrested on June 28th, 1923, sentenced to five years in McAllister. So apparently he decides to bunk up with Doc. Uh, he'd be out again in only a few years. And again, how nice uh, would it be to be their parents, right? Uh, now you have four sons. Four sons, all of whom are in prison for separate crimes. Uh, Ma Barker, whether you know uh, or not, she would later go on to be a criminal mastermind uh, or clearly, or just along for the ride, clearly not a great mom. Clearly a criminal enabler. Man, her and George not winning any Parent of the Year awards. 1926, Herman gets out of prison in Montana, heads back to Tulsa where he forms a new gang. On June 7th, 1926, Herman and another gang member are arrested. Uh, they, they quickly get out thanks to the help of a crooked Ottawa County judge, Philip McGee. And then on November 8th, 1926, uh, Fred, recently a free man, uh, is caught burglarizing a place called Dylan's Grocery Store. And on March 5th, 1927, he sends to another five years. This catcher is constantly in and out. This time at the Kansas State Penitentiary, where he would soon meet Alfin Creepy Carpus. Uh, December 20th, 1926, Herman, Ray Terrell, others break into the State Bank of Buffalo in Wilson County, Kansas steal 6000 in cash, and then American Express Traveler's Checks worth another 2000 And then three weeks later, on January 16, 1927, they take the safe from the bank in Rogersville, Missouri. And then the next day, Terrell Herman and their gang break into a bank in Jasper, Missouri. They'd stolen a truck, backed it up to the bank. Uh, the plan was to winch the safe into the back of the truck, take it back to the hideout at Radium Springs, empty it, then dump it over the side of the Lindsay May Bridge into the Grand River below. Jesus. And all this shit, mind you, is before the formation of the Ma Barker or Barker Carpus Gang. Uh, the crime run that would outlast the Dillinger Gang's run by years hasn't even started yet. All these crimes we've talked about, are these, these guys basically just warming up for their big robberies later. Uh, May 17th, 1927, another May 20, uh, 17th, excuse me, May 17th in the timeline this week. I love it. My birthday can't stay out of these timelines. Uh, Herman and his common lie wife, Carol, Use some of the stolen traveler's checks they just taken in Kansas. Clerk notices something's off, calls the police. Deputy Sheriff Arthur Emil Osborne stops him. 
And then after a quick exchange of words, Herman Barker pulls out a 32 caliber Colt automatic pistol, shoots Osborne twice in the chest and kills him. Damn. Things have just escalated to cop killing. Uh, in August, Herman leaves his girl, Carol, to do a quick job to rob the uh, Crystal Ice Company. Then on August 28th, Herman and two accomplices break in, crack the safe, take $200 and uh, head out. And then as they're driving back home, motorcycle patrolman Joseph Earl Marshall and his partner Frank Bush see a car speeding uh, by just after 1 a.m. Marshall approaches the car. Herman quickly shoots him three times in the head with his 32 Colt. Second cop he's killed. And not much time, man. Her- Herman Barker is a cold-blooded son of a bitch. Uh, Bush starts shooting, and there's a gunfight, and apparently Officer Bush was one hell of a shot because he-, he shot Herman and both of Herman's criminal associates. Herman was hit in the lower chest, starts bleeding out pretty badly. Uh, the, trio- the trio managed to drive away but quickly crashed into a burger joint. Then dazed, Herman opened the door, falls flat on his face, somehow manages to get back on his feet one last time, can barely breathe as, as-, as blood is pooling in his throat from the-, from the tunnel Bush's bullet had bored through his chest. Everything's starting to fade to black. He staggers a short distance away from the car uh, to the southeast corner of the intersection. Knows this is going to be the end of the line for him. He's either going to bleed out or he's going to get caught and bandaged up just to fry later in the electric chair for killing two cops. So he places his Colt against his right temple, uh, allegedly yelled out, forgive me, Ma, and he squeezed the trigger. So then Herman Barker, uh, George and Ari's firstborn son, dead at the age of 33. Ari's marriage with George now, this 1928, is on the rocks. You know, she and George are grieving the loss of their oldest boy. Uh, You know, her oldest son's dead. Her other three sons are still in prison. She starts to drink away her troubles. Starts hitting the the illegal speakeasies around town with her girlfriends. You know, drinking, carrying on with uh, known criminals around Tulsa during the height of prohibition. And this this pushes George over the edge. He's he's had enough. He's tired of, uh, you know, Ari never punishing the boys, being pushed around. So he packs his bags. And, uh, and he heads back to, to Webb City, just outside of Joplin, and he would never speak to Ari again. Uh, George would live another 13 years, dying in his home on February 8th, 1941, of arteri- arteriosclerosis, a hardening of the arteries, and chronic, uh, it's myocarditis, myocarditis. Basically, he had a weak heart, and it gave out on him. Uh, and check this out. He would be the only member of the immediate family to die of natural causes. That is crazy. Ma and all four sons would die from bullet wounds. That's fucking hardcore. Okay, now back to the years following George leaving Ari. Uh, 1930, Fred gets a new cellmate at Kansas State Penitentiary, uh, Alvin Creepy Carpus. And they quickly become friends. Uh, creepy, man. What a, what a terribly unflattering nickname. I, I gotta say, I feel like that might be my nickname if I were an old-timey gangster. <laughs> That old creepy Cummins. Stay away from him, see? He's dead in the eyes, I tell you. The boys used to call him Big Head or Boulder Noggin, but creepy Cummins just seems to suit him better. That stare of his gives me the heebie-jeebies. He's always talking about clean weans. Always talking about putting things in your lunchbox. Ugh, ugh. Well, when Barker's released in 1931, he gives Carpus his contact information, tells him to join him when he gets out, and then Alvin Creepy Carpus uh, will do that. And, and, and do you remember him, by the way, his name? If it sounds familiar, it's because we talked about him before. He showed up in the Charles Manson suck, way back in the suck catalog. Uh, Car- Carpus was the guy who taught Charles Manson how to play the guitar when they were uh, briefly incarcerated together in Alcatraz. How crazy is that? And uh, if you recall, also from the, the Manson suck, you know, Manson would then use his guitar playing to find his followers, the people who would become the Manson family. His guitar playing would also put him in touch with Dennis Willen, drummer uh, – <laughs> Dennis Wilson – 
drummer for the Beach Boys. And then he'd use uh, Dennis's contacts to try and get a record deal. And when he was rejected from the music business and didn't get his deal, his rage over that led to the LaBianca and Tate murders. Man, crazy butterfly effect, ladies and gentlemen. Crazy shit. Well, on March 2nd, 1931, Carpus is released, makes his way to Ma Barker's house. First, though, he stops to uh, see Herman's widow, Carol, who he knew through a mutual friend, fellow gangster and future Barker Carpus gang member, Lawrence Duvall. Uh, they have a little fling, and then Carpus uh, would later end up marrying her niece, Dorothy Ellen Slayman. Man, so fucked up. These guys were such a trashy bunch. Why do people do shit like that? Like date one woman and then later marry that woman's niece. It's so awkward. Expand your social circle. There's a lot of people in the world, right? You don't have to bang your way through one family tree. Why, why are you adding the extra drama to your life? Yeah, I don't understand that. Uh, after Creepy's release, Fred and Alvin form what would become known as the Barker Carpus Gang. And then the rest of this timeline will follow their exploits. Exploits, my God. On May 31st, 1931, Black's jewelry store in Henrietta, Oklahoma is robbed. 5,000 jewelry, 300 in cash is stolen. On June 10th, Alvin, Alvin Carpus, using the alias George Heller, Dorothy Ellen Slayman, uh, Fred Barker, his girlfriend Joanne Scott, Sam Coker, and Joe Howard are all arrested for the crime. Fred's role is determined to be minimal, and he only spends a few months in prison this time around. And then on September 11th, 1931, Carpus is sentenced to four years. So he gets a little, his role is determined to be much longer, and he gets uh, more jail time. Uh, Dorothy returns the stolen goods and gets paroled. And then on September 21st, 1931, Fred and another man break into a Chevy dealership. A police officer, uh, Elisha Hagler, catches him in the act. Fred shoots and injures him, and then he dies on October 21st, 1931. Another cop killed, the only officer to die on the job in Barry County, Missouri. Uh, James Langley and Rudolph Parker are arrested and convicted of this crime, and it wasn't until uh, 1971 when Carpus would publish his autobiography that Fred Barker would be identified as Hagler's real killer. Well, on September 26, 1931, Dorothy and Carpus get married in Monnet, Missouri. Dorothy's aunt is the maid of honor, and then all three of them go on the honeymoon together and share a bed. Uh, I have no idea if the aunt even attended the wedding, let alone was the maid of honor. Seems possible, though, with these dirtbags. Uh, 3 a.m., October 7th, 1931, the gang breaks into the People's Bank in Mountain View, Missouri. They'd hit out and waited until 9 a.m., or they would hide out and wait until 9 a.m. Uh, when two workers would arrive, and then Carpus and another member would use guns to force their way into the safe, and they would net 14000 in cash and securities, and it was Alvin Carpus's first daylight robbery. And then Fred and Alvin break into C.C. McCallan's clothing store on December 17th, steal $2,000 worth of merchandise. Uh, December 19th, they pick up a hitchhiker named Robert Gross who noticed the stolen clothing that they'd taken in a car. He telephoned the police. Sheriff Roy C. Kelly would then approach Fred and Alvin about the stolen goods, and Fred would shoot Kelly and kill him instantly. Man, these Barker boys had zero problem, no qualms at all about killing patrolmen. And I feel like some of the blame there falls on Ma as well. I'm guessing these killings didn't bother her one bit. You know, her oldest son, Herman, was killed by a cop. You know, these, these slains may, in fact, have uh, delighted her. But that's just speculation. But it uh, feels, feels real to me. Uh, the killing of Sheriff Kelly brings the gang a new level of heat. 1200 is offered for the capture of Alvin Carpus and Fred Barker in retaliation for the murder of the sheriff. I know that doesn't sound like much, but uh, 1200 in 1931 is, is more like 20000 in today's dollars. 18000 20000 Law enforcement knew that Alvin was married to Dorothy. They watched her like a hawk, and he wouldn't see her again for four years. Uh, her aunt was secretly delighted. Uh, when he did see her, he, uh, finally, he gives her $500 to take a secretarial course and file for divorce. 
Uh, Ari Ma Kate Barker also put on a wanted poster for a reward of 100 bucks, a little over 1500 in today's dollars. This is the only time she'd ever be on a wanted poster. And what's funny about it is she didn't actually have a criminal record. Uh, she would never have a criminal record, not in her whole life. She was wanted solely in connection, you know, to her sons, Fred and Alvin Carpus. To her son, excuse me, Fred, and then Alvin Carpus, uh, who was kind of like a son to her while he was in the gang, uh, he would say later. And now let's take, a, let's take a second to talk about an awesome new sponsor I'm very excited about. Uh, a few weeks ago, Queen of the Suck, Lindsay and I were talking about dream sponsors for Time Suck. And the one we wanted the most, I'm not shitting you, is today's sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Are you familiar with this fantastic companion to Time Suck? You know I try to grab as much knowledge as I can for the topic each week. And, and lately, I've been grabbing tons of bonus knowledge with The Great Courses Plus. Hail Nimrod. I urge you guys to check it out as well. It's so good. Uh, I even have a Kyler Monroe uh, using The Great Courses as well. And, and what, what, it, what are The Great Courses Plus? Well, it's unlimited access to deep dives on any topic that interests you. Uh, you get to learn from some of the world's top professors and experts. Uh, like this weekend on my on my flight uh, to and, and from Washington, D.C., I watched the Great Courses Plus course on uh, your de- – it's called Your Deceptive Mind. Uh, several courses in this uh, series called it's, uh, Your Deceptive Mind by Dr. Stephen Novella. Downloaded it onto the Great Courses Plus app so I could, you know, watch it on a plane where I didn't have uh, access to the Wi-Fi the whole time. You can stream or download with the app. Dr. Novella breaks down how to think critically in this uh, series, and it's the fucking – it's the best. It, it lets you understand how people allow their minds to trick them into coming to the most wackadoodle conclusions. Like he explains how when confronted with information in life, you need to think critically to lead the best possible life. Examine the premise. Look at the logic. Is there logic? What is the motivation of the person talking to you? Where is the evidence for Bigfoot? Where is Bigfoot? Uh, he really does use Sasquatch as an example. and <laughs> It's so good. Uh, it's a fascinating look in just how our brains work, how our brains process information, misinformation. If I could only legally tie flat earthers to chairs and force them to watch this course clockwork orange style, if they actually truly listen to Dr. Novella, they could not keep believing, I, I, I don't think. Uh, but I can't do that. But I can encourage you to listen. Uh, the Critical Thinking course, it's one of many, many, uh, so many great courses that you can enjoy with the great courses. Plus, thousands of lectures, you know, history, science, human behavior, photography, so much more. Watch or listen anytime. Uh, and of course, I have a, a special Time Sucker offer. Please take this. You will not regret it. Through Time Suck, you can get a free month of unlimited access to their awesome lectures. Uh, and just one lecture, again, uh, Dr. Novella talks about Sasquatches and the belief of certain people uh, that aliens are trying to take over the world. It's fantastic. And it's free for a month. And you can, you know, then you can just uh, unsign if you don't like it anymore. But you're going to like it. And, uh, and it's only free for a month if you go to our special URL. Go to the greatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Link in the episode description. Or you can push the Great Courses button on the sponsor page of the Timesuck uh, app or website. Just, just do it. You're going to be so happy. I promise you. Uh, okay. No more interruptions, but that last one was a, was a great one. I, I so love that company. After the murder of Sheriff Kelly Ma and the, and the Barker Carpus, uh, the Barker Carpus gang flee Oklahoma. They arrive in Joplin, immediately go to their friend, uh, Herb Deffy is his nickname. <laughs> Another terrible nickname. Uh, Deffy Farmer. Uh, they go to Deffy Farmer's house. Farmer was the Barker's friend and neighbor when they uh, lived in Joplin, Webb City before. He had a lot of contacts around the country who could help him out, you know, help hide him. 
And one of these contacts leads the gang up to West uh, St. Paul, Minnesota. And why St. Paul? Well, this is pretty fascinating. Uh, let's, let's talk about Minnesota's strange early 20th century relationship with gangsters. Uh, a man named John J. O'Connor joined the St. Paul Police Department around 1880, served on the force until June 1st, 1900, when the new mayor-elect appointed him as chief of police. And he was publicly heralded at the time as a champion of truth and justice. And he was privately crooked as shit. He was a dirty bird. He did bring an end to a big crime wave that had plagued St. Paul, but he did so by, by taking massive bribes from criminals around the country. Behind the scenes, he and his brother Richard quietly put together a plan where criminals could come to St. Paul, pay them a bribe, and then stay and not be bothered by law enforcement just as long as they didn't commit any crimes within city limits. You know, go 40 miles away and rob whoever you want. Just don't do it here. St. Paul would be a safe haven for early 20th century gangsters. It would be known among the underworld as a sanctuary city. And O'Connor's plan became known as the layover agreement. And yeah, it allowed criminals to, you know, stay in the city under three conditions total. They had to check in with police upon their arrival, uh, agree, as I said, to pay bribes to city officials, and then commit no major crimes uh, in the city of St. Paul. And this arrangement lasted for almost 40 years. Finally ending when rampant corruption forced crusading local citizens and the federal government to step in. Uh, a man named William Reddy Griffin was the first keeper of O'Connor's, uh, you know, saloon and system. Um, or I'm sorry, system, not saloon. Maybe his nickname came from having a Reddy uh, dog like Ween. I have no evidence of that being true. Also have no evidence of it uh, being not true. Uh, anyway, after arriving in town and meeting with the police, criminals would have to stop in and check in with Griffin, with Reddy Griffin at the Hotel Savoy in downtown St. Paul. Uh, when Griffin would die in 1913, a man named Dapper Dan Hogan would take over, and that's who the Barkers would meet. Uh, John Dillinger, Ma Barker, her boys, Babyface Nelson, Alvin Carpus, others, they'd all come to meet Dapper Dan. All considered St. Paul to be a safe haven. Uh, Dapper Dan's Green Lantern Saloon on uh, Wabashaw Street became a sort of clubhouse for these gangsters where they stayed in St. Paul. The original building doesn't exist any longer, but there is a Green Lantern Saloon at 229 6th Street East uh, in St. Paul that claims to carry on this legacy, according to their website. Uh, so in 1931, the Barker Carpets Gang, they head to this haven. They call themselves the Andersons. They say that they're musicians who have just come to play as part of an orchestra that was performing at resorts and lakes around the Twin Cities uh, of Minneapolis, St. Paul. They often carry around violin cases. Uh, I think this is interesting. These cases uh, just contain their guns. That's, that's pretty darkly cool, carrying guns around in violin cases. Alvin meets a 16-year-old girl named Dolores Delaney at the Green Lantern Speakeasy and is immediately taken with her. She's the sister of one of the criminal underworld members there, Rat Riley. That's a fucking scary nickname, Rat Riley, uh, who is a bartender at the Green Lantern. And, and Riley had a rule that every, every guy wants to make her, but we've got a rule. This is a quote. Nobody gets in her pants until she's 17. I love that he has that rule just out there. All right, I know she's cute, but nah, uh-uh. Not nothing in her pants until she's 17. Um... Play with her tatas if you must, but but nothing below the belt. Uh, but Alvin and Dolores, they become an item anyway, and they actually would have a son together, Raymond Alvin Carpus, in 1935. Old creepy Carpus, man, he, he clearly loves some danger. You know, he gets out of prison that, that last time, immediately bangs the widow of Herman Barker. That could have backfired on him. You know, that could have you know, pissed off the family. Then he shacks up with her niece, which also could have pissed off the Barker boys. Then he falls for the 16-year-old sister of the Green Lantern's bartender and, you know, a uh, big crime player in St. Paul, risks pissing, pissing off the people, uh, risks, you know, upsetting the people who are hiding them in, uh, in this cop-killing gang in St. Paul. He just, he just was immune to playing it safe. And yet, strangely, he would live by far the longest of all of them. 
Uh, December December 29th, 1931, Alvin, Fred, and four other gang members get right to work uh, making money up north, robbing a drugstore and hardware store in Pine River, Minnesota. January 5th, 1932, the gang hits Cambridge, Minnesota, steal a four-door Buick, ransack the whole town. That's a quote from Robert. They ransacked the whole town. Uh, so make of that what you will. They netted about $3,000. March uh, 29th, 1932, the gang pulls off their biggest heist so far. They hit the North American branch of the Northwestern National Bank at 1223 North Washington Avenue, Minneapolis. So they don't they don't go very far out of the safe haven this time. And the take was $75,000 in cash, 6500 in change, and $185,000 in bonds. Now that total of $266,500 is worth roughly $4.5 million in today's dollars. And uh, and $6,500 in change, how heavy was that? That's... That's 650 rolls a, a quarters. Yeah, you know, that's 3,250 rolls of nickels, 6,500 penny rolls. Ah, seems seems like a lot of change to carry around. Seems, seems like you could be just happy with the rest of it. But anyway, the gang doesn't enjoy their loot in St. Paul for long. A uh, short time after this, a neighbor opens a copy of True Detective magazine, sees a wanted photo of the boys in retaliation of for, for the uh, murder of Sheriff Kelly. The neighbor sneaks next door, writes the license plate number down, drives down to the police station, reports the boys to Chief Inspector James P. Crumley. And then, you know, uh, uh, James P. Crumley calls uh, Harry Sawyer, who's managing the Green Lantern at the, at the time, tells the boys they have to get out of town. So, you know, not, not even not even St. Paul can openly offer cop killers a place to stay. It, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll help them get out of town, but they're not going to let them stick around. Well, the boys blame Ma's boyfriend at the time, Arthur W. Dunlop, guy she started dating after she left her dad. Uh, a guy the uh, boys would refer to as the old bastard. Not much is known about Arthur, but he must have been crazy. Why would you date someone who has four sons who are all either in prison for serious crimes, including involvement in the murder of law enforcement officers, or out of prison committing armed robberies or worse? Some people just truly seem to have death wishes. Uh, they just have to play with fire until it eventually just burns them to the ground. Well, Ma reluctantly agrees with the boys' assessment that Dunlop probably ratted him out, even though he didn't. Uh, we now know it's the neighbor. And then on April 25th, 1932, the body of Dunlop is found in Webster, Wisconsin. He was shot several times. You, you know damn well the poor bastard, you know, sincerely pleaded his innocence in vain before they blasted him. But, you know, I don't feel bad for him. He he uh, he could have gotten out. And supposedly the old bastard was, he was, uh, he was just a guy, again, who seemed to really have a death wish. He, was, he would get a bit rough with Ma from time to time. That's, that's not smart. He would mooch off the loot. Her sons, you know, would, would, would give her. Also not smart. He was known to get mouthy when he drank, which was often, and uh, and the boys hated him. You know, he'd been along for the gang's ride for over two years by the time he's killed. He knew what he got himself into. He had plenty of time to get out, but he didn't. You know, uh, he may not have ratted him out, but uh, he did get himself killed in a way. After leaving St. Paul, Ma and the boys would then go to Kansas City, Missouri, to lay low for a little while. Uh, pretty soon after arrival, though, they hit the town one night and end up at the bar at the Pickwick Hotel, which has since been transformed into, into Pickwick Plaza a $65 million luxury apartment restoration project uh, if you're a Kansas City sucker. Well, one night in 1932, the Barker boys would have some drinks in this hotel and then get into an argument with future U.S. president. Uh, an older fellow is sitting by himself at a table, sees the Barker boys and Alvin Carpus come in, motions for them to come join him, buys them around to drinks. And uh, this man and Alvin would end up talking for hours. Uh, their conversation would make Fred nervous, who would sit at the bar and watch him. After a while, Alvin and the man, uh, you know, they're pretty well plastered. And then they started to argue about politics. And at one point, the man stares at his drink and says, young man, you don't know a thing about politics. To which Alvin replies, you don't know who I know in politics. And then things start to get heated. 
Uh, looks like there could be some kind of confrontation. Fred grabs Alvin by the arm, leads him out of the bar back home. Luckily, nothing worse happened like, uh, you know, Alvin killing this guy. You know, they killed Cosby for. They just killed Ma Barker's boyfriend. What would another murder be to them? And it, uh, and it is a good thing they didn't kill him because this new drinking buddy of Alvin's was none other than Judge Harry S. Truman, who would in 1945, of course, become president. Harry S. Truman and go on after the war to form the CIA, amongst many other things. You know, that organization that's led to so many suckworthy topics, such as Project MK Ultra. You know, uh, you know the CIA's possible involvement in the assassination of JFK, Martin Luther King Jr., CIA working with Pablo Escobar in the cocaine smuggling business, so much more. On June 17th, 1932, the gang hits Citizens National Bank in Fort Scott, Kansas, and they end up having to improvise a, a, a bit to escape capture. An employee trips a silent alarm. The gang hears sirens in the distance, and they end up taking a few girls uh, who are there at the bank as hostages. And they make the girls stand on the running boards of the car, their getaway car, as they speed away. No shots are fired because police didn't want to risk hitting the girls. And then once the gang was clear of the cops, they released the, the girls. Uh, their take was 47000 almost eight hundred grand in today's dollars. And those poor girls happen to stand outside the car and be used as human shields. That has to be uh, arguably possibly the least fun way to travel as a human shield. Like, like I don't like riding the bus. Like I used to get, I used to get a car sick a lot as a kid. And sometimes I feel that old nauseous creep back uh, when I'm on a bus, but I would way rather ride a bus, even a shitty bus than travel as a human shield. Like what if there was a really cheap fare option listed on, fl- on flights? Like, like maybe the, the ticket was $1,200, you know, for first class, 600 for main cabin with a chance of an upgrade. 450 for economy, non-refundable ticket, but only like 40 bucks if you're willing to fly as a human shield. You know, they throw a couple <laughs> throw a couple seats out on the wing, give you a little mask. I'm still not going to buy that ticket. What the hell are those people doing out there on the wing? Oh, those are human shields. Uh, on July 25th, 1932, the gang hits Cloud County Bank in Concordia, Kansas. This goes off smoothly. Take is over two hundred and fifty grand, over four million, you know, uh, dollars in today's spending power. These guys are making a lot of money. On August eighteenth, nineteen thirty two, the gang hit Second National Bank in Beloit, Wisconsin. Uh, there, they order Bank President B. P. Eldred to open the vault. At first, he refuses, and they pistol whip him into submission. Total take on this robbery was fifty grand. Man, the old pistol whipping. You don't hear about that a lot anymore. Man, if you if you really hated somebody, if someone was really annoying you, how satisfying would it feel to pistol whip them? It has to be a good feel. Uh, September first, they hit the uh, first national bank of uh, Flandro. Flandro, another another little town. I guess I, I missed looking up that I thought I could nail. Now I question. Flandro, South Dakota. Uh, they snuck in dressed as farmers this time, not to arouse unwanted suspicion. And they uh, they take a little bit. They take seventy four hundred dollars in cash, twenty six hundred dollars in bonds. September tenth, nineteen thirty two. Doc Barker is paroled from the Oklahoma State Penitentiary in McAllister, where he'd been serving that life sentence for that shooting death of the night watchman. Uh, Thomas J. Sherrill, remember back in 1921, he's released on the condition that he never is to set foot in Oklahoma again. He does leave Oklahoma. He also immediately joins up with the Barker Carpus gang, a gang with his, bro, uh, his brother. His mom gets right back to, uh, to being a criminal. Uh, September 23rd, two weeks after being released, uh, Doc and the gang hit the State Bank and Trust in Redwood Falls, Minnesota. They, again, take women as hostages, making them, again, stand on the running boards to use them as human shields on the sides of the car. Again, worst, the worst way to travel. Like, if, if Uber ever offers a human shield discount fare, don't take it. Uh, you know, you either pay the non-human shield fare or you walk. Uh, a few miles out of town, they, they let the women go. Uh, they then uh, throw uh, thumbtacks across the road in order to prevent others from following them. These guys are fucking pros, man. 
Several pursuers uh, do end up with flat tires. Uh, the gang makes a clean break. They get away with over thirty grand in cash, another four thousand travels che- uh, travelers checks, over six hundred thousand dollars worth of money today. Uh, a week later, on September thirtieth, they hit up Citizens National Bank across the Red River in Wapaton, North Dakota. They take again uh, more women to stand on the running boards. It's becoming their thing now. But this time, one of the women, uh, Miss Stock, does get shot at, and the bullet breaks her legs. Law enforcement—they've had it with this. They're just, I guess, just going to go ahead and start shooting now. When they pull over, Alvin uh, gave the woman a quarter grain of morphine in her leg, and then told her, "Don't blame us. Blame that trigger happy bastard with the rifle. What an asshole! Don't don't blame me. Hey, look, all I did was kidnap you at gunpoint and make you stand outside our car as we drove away at a high speed while the cops shot at us. I'm just—I was just doing my job, lady. Sheesh." Uh, bad day for the cop too, man. How, how was your day, honey? No, uh, not good. Not good. Shot a woman. Uh, what did she do? Uh, she picked a bad way to travel. She picked a bad way to get across town. Never, never travel is a human shield, Martha. Not ever. After the shootout with police, the car is shot up and barely running. Uh, the gang is attempting to leave town. As they're attempting, they notice an old Essex sedan near the road. They ask the farmer in the yard if it'll run. He says, yes. Uh, looks at all the bullet holes in their car and asks, what's this all about? Alvin replies, we just robbed the bank in Wapaton and uh, and we need that car to get out of here fast. Uh, we're taking yours and leaving ours and we'll give you some money to square it. <laughs> that is kind of cool in a way that he's like, you know, he's still, he steals from the bank, but with the, when it comes to the farm, he's like, yeah, I'll give you some money. Uh, as Duvall starts pulling money out of the bag to give it to him, the old man smiles and says, so you robbed the bank, did you? Well, I don't care. All the banks ever do is foreclose on us farmers. They went back inside, brought out the keys, and they sped away. Uh, this really illustrates the public perception of bank robbers during the Depression, I feel like. Farmers, you know, uh, losing their farms and homes to the banks left and right. Homeowners across the country are losing their asses to the banks. Almost everyone's losing their asses. But the banks, are, you know, they're still standing. They seem to be doing fine, many of them. Uh, some of them are getting rich, gathering up these properties. And a lot of people, you know, would think, well, fuck these banks. Good for those boys. Take a little back uh, from the banks. Take a little back from the government. It's not, you know, doing shit to help us, you know, that's uh, actively fucking up our lives. And I, I do think that attitude is part of what allowed a lot of these gangs to have the success in the long runs that they did, right? The reward money was enticing, but a lot of people just did not want to turn them in because they were viewed kind of as, you know, folk heroes by a lot of people. Uh, December 16th, 1932, the gang would uh, participate in their bloodiest robbery to date. Their target was the third Northwestern Bank in Minnesota. Someone hit one of those silent alarms again. They're leaving the bank. The gang opens fire with machine guns. Two police officers are killed in the subsequent shootouts, along with the bystander. Man, more cops getting killed. Uh, the bystander got killed for, quote, looking at Fred too long. My God. The take this time was 22000 in cash, 100000 in securities, over $2 million in today's dollars. And they don't slow down the robbing. I feel, like, I feel like by this point, they can't possibly justify needing more money to keep robbing. They've taken the equivalent of around $10 million so far in a short amount of time. And, and they still have so much robbing ahead of them. On December 18th, 1932, a member of the gang, uh, Lawrence Duvall, the guy who introduced Creepy Carpus to Herman ba- uh, Barker's widow, is arrested after complaints about a loud party uh, uh, bring police to their apartment. Upon entering, they see cash wrappers that say Third Northwestern Bank, as well as $10,000 in stolen securities, and he gets arrested. After his arrest, the gang and uh, Ma Barker flee to Reno for some R&R. Well, Duvall would be charged with the, with the murder of those police officers from the previous bank robbery. He'd be sentenced to life in prison. Uh, he'd actually be able to get himself out. He'd act up and get himself transferred to the St. Peter Hospital for Criminally Insane, and he would break out of that place in 1936. So he, he didn't stay very long 
as far as being incarcerated after getting that life sentence. Barely a month, though, after busting out, he would get into a shootout with police and get himself killed. He would take nine bullets. Uh, Reno was a good change of pace for the rest of the gang. At the time of their lives, apparently, there in uh, late December of 1932 and uh, January 1933, they'd go to casinos, burn through their loot, meet other people in their line of work, yuck it up, get hammered. Uh, they met a young fellow who was also on the lam there after escaping prison in Illinois. It turned out this uh, man had grown up in the same area of Chicago that Alvin had after Alvin's uh, family had moved to Chicago from Montreal where he's born, but they'd never met. The two became good friends and Alvin would often eat dinner with him and his wife and kids. Uh, when Alvin became ill, his new friend would hook him up with a doctor who performed a, tons a tonsillectomy on him. This young man that became Alvin's buddy was Lester Joseph Gillis, better known uh, under his, by his alias, Babyface George Nelson. Future public enemy number one for the FBI and a man who'd be gunned down by the FBI the following year in 1934. Well, the following month in February of 1933, the gang heads back to the Midwest. In April, Creepy Carpus drives down to Joplin to see his friend Herb Farmer, old Deffy. Uh, Deffy has two guests at his house this time, a man and a woman. They made uh, Carpus apparently extremely uncomfortable, and their names are Clyde Barrow and girlfriend Bonnie Parker. Bonnie and Clyde, man. Showing up. A lot, of, a lot of gangster cameos this week. Fascinating. The little old Joplin, Missouri had so many notorious gangsters crashing inside its city limits. Uh, on April 4th, 1933, the gang hits a bank in Fairbury, Nebraska. Something goes wrong. A Tommy gun jams as they're leaving. And uh, they would end up uh, shooting off an entire round of 100 bullets, leaving one dead and six wounded in this heist. They take $37,000 in cash, another $39,000 in World War I Liberty Bonds this time. After the haul, a man named Jack Pfeiffer approaches the Barker Carpus gang about a possible kidnapping for some ransom. They got quite the reputation now. They're getting work offered to them, uh, criminal work. The target would be William A. Ham Jr., the president of the Ham Brewing Company, one of the wealthiest men in St. Paul. And the gang spend most of May and June kind of, you know, uh, doing some surveillance on him. They decide that they would nab him outside of his post office or outside of his office, <laughs> not post office, outside of his office. And they would, uh, you know, uh, kind of throw him into a limousine. They stole a large black limousine for the job. Uh, June 15th, 1933, Alvin parks the limo across the street from the brewery. They get ham into the car saying it was waiting for him. Uh, once inside, they have him sign four ransom notes that they will disperse to his families, uh, to his friends and family. They cover his eyes, take him to their hideaway. Hold him there until June 19th when the ransom is paid. And I guess uh, Ham was a model prisoner. I guess Carpus in particular had come to respect him. Uh, they released him to Wyoming, Minnesota, asked him to wait 20 minutes before calling for help. And they uh, they got 70000 in ransom money for him, almost $1.2 worth of dollars today. Uh, September 6th, 1933, fingerprints are found at the Ham Ransom, uh, found on the Ham Ransom Notes using a new technology where scientists would brush the prints with a solution containing silver nitrate, which would react with the sodium chloride uh, found in the actual prints. The prints were then tracked back to Alvin Karpis and Doc Barker. And this was the first time in U.S. history that fingerprint gathering, this particular fingerprint gathering technique, would be used to solve a crime. On August 30th, 1933, the gang hits a post office in South St. Paul to steal payroll, but the police show up mid-heist. Doc shoots and kills Officer Leo Pavlak. Uh, gangster Charles Fitzgerald is also injured during the heist. He's given his share, promised 10% of future takes as part of the gangster insurance plan until he's healed. Despite the presence of police, they still take $33,000, valued at over half a million today. It's September 1933. Uh, the gang heads down to Chicago for a large robbery. They're 
They're going to hit uh, a delivery to the Federal Reserve Bank. Look, we're going for a big payday this time. They buy a car in preparation of this uh, heist from Al Capone's car guy, Joe Burgle. Uh, Joe installs bulletproof glass and a hidden panel in the driver's door that could be activated by a button in the glove box. It was a little portal. You know, when the button was pushed, it would open up so that a gun could be fired through the door. On September 22nd, 1933, they intercept the Federal Reserve delivery. They grab the money bags, take off in less than three minutes. Everything's going great so far, except they fucked one thing up big time in their preparation. Such a silly thing. They forgot to gas up the car. <laughs> oh, somebody, somebody got beat for that one, right? Well, I guess unless it was one of the head guys. Then they, was, they were just mad, but they're not going to cause an altercation. But man, they forgot to gas up their fancy new getaway car. And uh, they started running out of gas right after the heist. They had to abandon it, had to carjack a new sedan. Even worse, when they get back to their hideout, they open the bags to discover that their loot is nothing but canceled checks. They got the wrong shit. Uh, they didn't make a cent off of what they assumed was going to be their biggest heist, you know, yet. And they lost a bunch of money, you know, renting their hideout and buying that fancy custom car that they had to abandon. Uh, November of 1933, the gang heads to Reno again, this time with Harry Sawyer, crime boss in Minneapolis and his wife. While there, Sawyer explains to the boys that he wants their help with the kidnapping. This time, the target would be Edward G. Bremer, president of Commercial State Bank. Carpus is hesitant to do this job. He knew that Bremer's, uh, he knew that Bremer's father was a very close personal friend of FDR. Uh, Sawyer assured the gang that his contacts in the St. Paul Police Department would assure it was low risk and that it would be worth uh, $200,000 they would get in ransom, uh, the equivalent of $3 million, you know, today. And then on January 17, 1934, the gang is ready to take Bremer. They stole a car in preparation for his kidnapping. When Doc opens the driver's side door, Bremer fights back. He punches him in the face. Ballsy. He's not a model prisoner like Ham was. Doc has to pistol whip him into submission. Another pistol whipping. Ah, must feel good. Uh, gang then sent out a uh, demand that uh, $200,000 be paid in non-sequential, non-marked $5 and $10 bills. And then Carpus would learn he was right to be hesitant about this particular kidnapping. They had taken shit too far. And, uh, and this particular crime would send the FBI crashing down upon them. January 18th, 1943, the headline of the St. Paul Dispatch reads, Edward G. Bremer kidnapped. Secrecy veils second major seizure here. All of the local papers run with his story around the country. Uh, President Roosevelt assures the, Bre the, the Bremers that he would help in any way he could. And he, uh, he brings up this particular kidnapping in one of his uh, famous fireside chats, calling the gang an attack on everything we hold dear. Federal agents immediately are sent to Minnesota to find Bremer. That's the end of this place being a sanctuary city. Bremer's family pays the $200,000 to free him, but the money has been marked. The serial number of each and every bill has been written down. The list sent out to every bank in the country. Alvin and Fred have a hunch that the money has been marked, so they make plans to find someone who can launder it. And uh, it had taken 20 long, grueling days for them to get this payoff. For Alvin and Fred, it's been 20 days to hell listening to Bremer's constant whining. Now they have the money. They can be rid of him at last. And then they send Carpus to Reno to launder the money, but then he is told there that it's untouchable uh, due to fingerprints again. Doc, Fred, and Alvin are all named as suspects in the killing. Uh, excuse me, uh, in the kidnapping. Uh, so they're all uh, suspects there. Man, um, so many crimes keep up with this. Man, it's just uh, it's a little dizzying, isn't it? This timeline, I'm just like, Jesus, just crime after crime after crime, date after date. Then in late February, in a desperate attempt to avoid capture, the boys seek out a man named Dr. Joseph P. Moran, uh, who could supposedly surgically remove one's fingerprints for, for $1,250. Man, check out how horrific this procedure was. And that's crazy that they were willing to try to do this. 
Uh, Moran operated on Alvin's and Fred's fingers by first taking rubber bands to reduce the blood flow into their fingertips. So, you know, deadens their fingers with tight rubber bands around each finger, then injects cocaine into each fingertip to dull the pain, and then uses a scalpel to peel the layers of skin off of their fingertips. Fuck. Can you imagine that? Peeling the skin off of all 10 of your digits, like the whole, from the last knuckle to the tip, just all of that sensitive, feel that now on your finger, on your hand. It's so sensitive, so many nerve endings, right? It's how we, uh, such such important nerve endings, you know, how we, our, our tactile sense, how we, you know, find out how things feel with our fingertips and he cuts the skin off of all of them. You ever had a paper uh, cut on your fingertip? I have, and it fucking hurts. Now imagine that the tips of all of your fingers and both your thumbs are essentially just turned into one big paper cut. <laughs> Holy shit. Well, once he's finished, he bandages their fingers. Once the cocaine wears off, the pain is, of course, excruciating. At this point of view is smart. I wonder if he left town for a few weeks. Not good to be uh, to put two of America's most dangerous homicidal gangsters into an excruciating amount of pain. The pain supposedly nearly drove Fred literally insane. And for him, it didn't even work. His fingertips grew back. But the surgery did work for Alvin. Uh, I saw a picture of him later in life, and he had no fingertips. Uh, neither one of those dudes after the surgery could feed themselves, shave, etc., for several weeks without help. Guessing wiping their asses became a bit of a challenge as well. Uh, the gang buried the, the Mark Bills uh, for safekeeping. But then later when they went to dig it up, they realized that water had gotten into the bags and soaked into the money. So now it's all fucking wet. It's moldy. It's marked stained ah you know they dry it out but it's still stained not good they contact a gangster in gross point michigan named cassius cash mcdonald see if he could launder it and, and he could for 15 percent. he could do it in cuba uh it would take a long time though after the difficulty of this job and all the heat that's now you know being brought on them by the fbi all the national attention that they, they decide to lay low for a while creepy carpus and his girl dolores head to cuba fred barker and ma they head to lake weir florida living under the alias of the Blackburns, and Doc Barker would head to Chicago with his girlfriend. And then on January 8th, 1935, Doc Barker would be arrested while hiding out in Chicago. Special agent, FBI guy, Earl J. Connolly, the Fed who also took down Babyface Nelson, tracked him down. Uh, Doc attempted to flee, but slipped on a patch of ice when he was running away. He was unarmed. He had left his, uh, he'd left his gun at home. All he could do was look up and sh- smile sheepishly as one of the agents... Uh, some new guy who just recently joined the division of investigation asked him, where's your heater, doc? Uh, and he replied, it's up in the apartment. And then the man replied, you're lucky, doc. Ain't that a hell of a place for it? After all of his tough guy shootouts, doc doesn't put up much of a fight. Uh, he has no weapon. He's, uh, you know, he's taken quietly. Back at doc's apartment, federal agents found lots of weapons and ammunition, including a Tommy gun. Uh, this, the serial number of the gun was uh, traced. It was proven to have been the Thompson stolen from officer Yeoman's patrol car during the South St. Paul, Minnesota robbery that left Officer Leo Pavlak dead. Uh, the Asians, agents also found a map of Florida with a red circle drawn around Ocala, uh, the area around Lake Weir where Fred and Ma were staying. Also found uh, was a letter from Ma Barker. In the letter, she told Doc all about some alligator the locals alternatively, uh, alternately called Big Joe, Gator Joe, or Old Joe. Uh, Fred had gone... Uh, uh, had become obsessed with trying to bag this monster, apparently. Gator Joe was estimated to be about 16 feet in length, one of the oldest alligators in the area. He'd been seen for years. Uh, the agents would read this letter, you know, and then they're like, great, we'll just go hunting for uh, old Joe as well. Uh, Ma and Fred, you know, they were living large down in Florida. Ma loved their cottage. Fred loved fishing. Uh, you know, again, his biggest uh, uh, obsession. 
you know, was uh, trying to catch that three-legged 16-foot alligator named Bojangles. Uh, just like our three-legged one-eyed hellhound, prophet of Nimrod, praise Bojangles. No, of course, it was uh, it's old Joe. Fred would go on frequent fishing trips with some of his neighbors trying to find this three-legged alligator. Uh, when they told him about old Joe, you know, he, he initially he just got so excited, lit up like a Christmas tree, wanted to be the one to bag the beast. And this is how he uh, fished for it. He bought a hog from a local farmer, killed it, then just would drag the hog behind his boat <laughs> and circle the lake and wait with his Tommy gun. Uh, I love how he goes from fishing to dragging a dead hog behind a boat in hopes of attracting an alligator to shoot with a machine gun. That is that is the most aggressive form of fishing I've ever heard of. What, what kind of fishing are you doing? You doing some fly fishing? Uh, you casting some bobbers off the dock? You doing some trolling? Uh, Tommy gunning. Uh, doing some Tommy gunning, actually. Huh. Not familiar with that technique. What uh, what kind of bait do you use when you're Tommy gunning? Nightcrawlers? Grasshoppers? Spinners? Uh, no, I, I use a hog. Use a big old hog. I just uh, I just drag it around in circles and wait, wait to shoot the alligator. Uh, wait to light it up with a machine gun. That's insane. January 16th, 1935, 5.30 a.m., 14 federal agents surround this cottage in Florida, thinking the people in the house intended to come out and surrender. Connolly starts, uh, stated for Fred to come out first, but Fred's not going to come out. Ah, the Barkers, man, they're not going to go out quietly. Uh, not when they got some guns in the house. Uh, instead of coming out, you know, Connolly gets shot out with the with the Tommy, Tommy gun that appears from the upstairs southwest bedroom window. Fred first fires about 50 rounds at Connolly, takes cover behind a tree. Agent White returns fire. Fred then rushes downstairs, fires from a front door, uh, from the front door with the rifle. Uh, White, armed with a 351 Winchester semi-automatic rifle, returns fire. Connolly fires into the house with a 30-06 Springfield rifle. A machine gun fire rains back down from the window, sporadically from different windows throughout upstairs. And the battle raged for like uh, a little over three hours, uh, with Fred firing sporadically as if to conserve ammunition. The agents concentrate the majority of their fire towards the upstairs southwest bedroom where most of the shots have been coming from. Finally, about 1130, uh, the firing ceases. After a considerable amount of time elapses, uh, Connolly asks the cottage's caretaker, a gentleman named Willie Woodbury, to attempt to gain entry and see what the situation was inside. He'd been hired by Ma and stayed in a small outbuilding on the property. He, he didn't like the idea. Yeah, I, I bet not. But he joked uh, that if they gave him 20 bucks, he'd, he'd go check on him. Uh, <laughs> poor bastard. They give him 20 bucks, and he does. He risked being lit up with a Tommy gun, you know, for, for 20 bucks. Seems like a shitty way to make that money. But um, but he does it, and he finds both Ma and Fred in the upstairs bedroom dead. He sees Ma first. She was lying dead on the floor in the fetal position, barefooted. Her left side just inside where uh, her left side just inside the door with her back against the closet door. Excuse me. Her hands were under her face. She had caught three bullets in the chest. One had gone straight through her heart, killing her basically instantly. Uh, Fred was lying dead uh, face down in the middle of the room at the foot of one of the two beds in the room, his body riddled with numerous bullets. Many people appalled uh, when the story breaks that the feds had shot an unarmed woman. Uh, you know, not that they know for sure that she was unarmed. I mean, I guess, she, you know, she could have been fired from in there, but it's assumed that she was unarmed and people are not happy. And this is where that narrative of Ma Barker being the ringleader starts. Hoover, you know, he has the FBI push this narrative to the press and a lot of people think he did so to get the public again back on the FBI side in this investigation and in this, uh, you know, in these deaths. If people thought she was not a woman, just overly loyal, loyal to her criminal sons, it looks bad for the FBI to shoot her up. However, if they can frame her as the criminal mastermind for the entire cop killing, bank robbing, human shield using, kidnapping run, her shooting seems more than justified. In his later, uh, you know, autobiography, Alvin Creepy Carpus would write. 
the idea that Ma was the brains behind our five years of holdups and crimes is strongly entrenched in North America in books, kids' comics, detective fiction, movies, and for that matter, in every other entertainment outlet, Ma has been described as a genius of crime for so long that nobody will ever believe what she was to us, a simple woman and the mother of Freddie and Doc. Ma was always somebody in our lives. She was somebody we looked after and took with us when we moved from city to city, hideout to hideout. Her participation in our careers was limited to one function. Whether she was aware of it or not, Ma made a nearly foolproof cover for Freddie and me and Doc. When we traveled together, we moved as a mother and three sons. What could look more innocent? Uh, Harvey Bailey, another gangster era bank robber who'd met Ma numerous times, stated that the old woman couldn't plan breakfast. When we'd sit down to plan a bank job, she'd go in the other room and listen to Amos and Andy or Hillbilly music on the radio. Uh, after Fred and Ma's death, George Barker, who never finalized his divorce with Artie, sued the government for the estate of his estranged wife and kids and received 1200 bucks, roughly 20000 today. Uh, in the cottage, the feds found quite a little stash of weapons. She may not have been a mastermind, but Ma sure as shit knew what her boys were all about. Didn't seem to condemn their lifestyle one bit. Based on her own childhood fascination with Jesse James and his gang, she knew damn well who they were. And she knew what uh, she added to their organization. She may not have been the leader, but she was a de facto member of the Barker's Car- Barker Carpus gang for sure. Uh, yeah, in the cottage, law enforcement found two 1921 Tommy guns with serial numbers filed off. A fully loaded 50 cartridge drum for the Tommy gun. They found another empty 50 cartridge drum, a 100 cartridge drum, still with 70 bullets in it. They found a stock for another Tommy gun, uh, a Colt 45 pistol, damaged by a bullet hitting the handle. They found another undamaged Colt 45 automatic pistol, nine separate 45 automatic pistol clips, one 380 automatic Colt pistol, five 380 automatic pistol clips, one Browning 12 gauge automatic shotgun, one Remington 12 gauge pump shotgun a Winchester 33 caliber lever action rifle missing its serial number. Uh, quite the cash for one man in his, in his innocent uh, old mama. Uh, January 20th, 1935, Alvin Carpus is now the only core member of the Barker Carpus gang who is still both alive and free. Uh, he's in Atlantic City where he nearly gets arrested, does, uh, does get into a gunfight with some cops. His girl Dolores gets shot in the leg and captured. Carpus and an associate uh, escape, steal a 1934 Pontiac Special and skip town. And then near Allentown, Pennsylvania, as they're you know driving away, uh, they end up uh, driving behind a 1934 Plymouth that has a doctor's emblem on the rear bumper, and they pull alongside and yell at the driver, "Stay, police! We want to talk to you." When the driver pulls over, Carpus's associate quickly jumps in, commandeers the car, makes the driver move over into the passenger seat, follows behind, and then Carpus follows behind this Pontiac until they come to the side of the road. Alvin parks, leaves the Pontiac running, jumps into the Plymouth, and they drive away. Because he knows when cops would find the Pontiac, they would think that Alvin and Harry just, you know, ran out of gas. This associate of his and were on foot. Well, the man whom they carjacked, Dr. Horace Hunsicker, turned out to be a pretty pleasant fellow who told them he'd been visiting his parents and was returning to Allentown Hospital. He said if he was gone for a few hours, no one would miss him and seemed to actually enjoy this sudden adventure. And, uh, and I guess they got along like they were old buddies, mostly because Carpus didn't actually tell them why they were really running and who they really were. <laughs> the doctor emblems on the bumpers worked like a charm. They ran into a police roadblock on the way towards Altoona, but when the cops saw the doctor's emblems, they just get waved on through. Finally, they reach Ohio. Uh, they stop at the Grange Hall in Wadsworth, Ohio, where they take Dr. Hunsicker into the basement, tie him up near a furnace so he'll stay warm. By this time, he, he realized who they were and was afraid they were going to kill him, but they told him not to worry, stuck a $50 bill in his breast pocket so he had the money to re- return home when somebody freed him. Uh, November 7th, 1935, Car- uh, 1935, Carpus is back at it. He's assembled a new gang 
and robs a mail truck uh, for seventy-two thousand in cash, fifty-three thousand in bonds, the equivalent of over two million in today's dollars. Man, just right back at it. Uh, September nineteen thirty-five, Carpus uh, commits what will be his last robbery. He and his new gang rob a mail train, expecting to get one hundred eighty thousand, but they had the day wrong, and they ended up only getting thirty-four thousand in cash, uh, a little over twelve thousand in bonds. And unbeknownst to him, the feds are now closing in on him. May 1st, 1936, a team of federal agents surrounds the apartment that Alvin Carpus is staying in in New Orleans. Uh, they bring him out, subdue him. One of the men shouts, we've got him, chief. It's all clear. From the corner of his eye, Alvin then sees two men approach who had been waiting in the wings out of sight, uh, even though the narrative of the time would be that they actively you know, arrested him. Uh, he, he recognized them as being FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover and Associate Director Clyde Tolson. Both had traveled to New Orleans to be there for the arrest of public enemy number one, J. Edgar Hoover. Gotta suck that dude someday. Uh, he was the director. Check this out. He was the director of the FBI, and I, and I don't have these numbers wrong, from 1924 to 1972. And, and he didn't step down in 1972. He finally died at the age of 77. Uh, allegedly, part of why he stayed in power for damn near 50 years was because even presidents were afraid of him. He had dirt on everybody. Uh, and he was also rumored to be the lover of associate director Tolson. Uh, makes the story more interesting. The two bachelors would ride together uh, to and from work, eat lunch together, work together, uh, vacation together. When Hoover died, he left his estate to Tolson. Tolson moved into his home. Uh, dude got the, Tolson got the flag from Herbert, uh, or from J. Edgar Hoover's uh, coffin at his funeral. Uh, and then, you know, uh, J. Edgar Hoover also lived his entire life in Washington, D.C. Uh, what an interesting bio. Anyway. Uh, as for Carpus, he'd spend the next 26 years in prison. From August 1936 to April 1962, he'd be incarcerated in the newly constructed Alcatraz, a place I toured once when visiting San Francisco. He joined the other remaining living member of the Barker Carpus gang, Arthur Doc Carpus, uh, Arthur Doc Baker, excuse me, uh, who's already in prison there, right? Serving a life sentence for the kidnapping of Edward Bremer. Uh, he served the longest sentence out of any Alcatraz prisoner yet. And, and as I said before, he met a young man, Charles Manson, in Alcatraz, who was briefly in prison there for the Manson family murders. You know, teaches him how to play guitar. And then uh, in 1939, Doc Barker tries to escape from Alcatraz. Of course he did, man. The Barker boys, they just, they just uh, man, they just couldn't, they couldn't like just stay there. They just couldn't write out, you know, life sentence. Of course they couldn't. January 13th, 1939, Barker and fellow inmates, Dale Stamphill, Henry Young, Rufus McCain, all attempt to escape the rock. Uh, Henry Young would later say of Barker, he was one of America's most dangerous men. I knew, however, that he was determined and ruthless and that once he started on anything, nothing could stop him but death. I couldn't think of anyone else I'd rather have with me on a break from Alcatraz. Uh, and this is pretty intense, man. The four dudes, they've been placed in the segregation unit for being troublesome prisoners. Uh, Parker and his associates in the segregation unit would saw through four sets of prison bars concealing the daily damage they did for prison inspections with some makeshift putty they came up with. When they finally broke out, they climb over uh, some high walls. Uh, under the cover of foggy night, they make it down to the beach at the edge of the island. They split up into two pairs. Barker and Stampill try to swim out together towards San Francisco, but were pushed back by the tide. How much would that suck? You actually make it out undetected from your cell in Alcatraz, America's most secure prison, a new prison. You know, you saw your way out of your cell. And then you can't swim to the San Francisco shore, you know, even though you can see it's right there. I've been on Alcatraz. I've uh, been on the island taking pictures of downtown San Francisco from the island, and it does feel like you could totally make it. 
but as I as as they said on the tour I was on, the water's deceptively cold. It's like usually like the fifties degree wise, and uh, you can you you risk hypothermia swimming out there. And the current is deceptively strong. It can be done. It it has been done, but only by very experienced, very proficient swimmers with the proper gear. Uh, Doc Barker, he may have been tough as dirt, but he wasn't Michael Phelps in a wetsuit. So then they uh, they tried to quickly build a raft from bits of wood laying around the beach, tie the wood together with strips of cloth from their shirts, hoping they could make a little little makeshift thing to to float on before uh, you know anybody anyone spots them. But then they do get spotted by a guard in a watchtower when the fog briefly clears. The guard orders them to throw their hands up in the air. Doc, of course, does not. So they open fire on him, and uh, and he gets shot in the head. And then he was, you know, recaptured and then dies shortly afterwards from his wounds. And then the other guys are recaptured and sent to solitary confinement. So that's the end of his tale. So now we just got Carpus left. Everybody else is uh, dead uh, by 1969 when uh, Carpus gets released on parole and gets deported to Canada. And he initially has trouble getting a Canadian passport because he didn't have any goddamn fingerprints. Yeah, he, uh, he had all surgically removed back in Reno. Uh, he settles finally in Montreal. Uh, publishes his memoirs in 1971 and publishes more memoirs in 1980 in uh, Spain, where he would live, uh, where he had lived since 1973. And then he dies in Spain uh, in 1991 at the age of 72, originally thought to be suicide. Originally thought to be some sleeping, sleeping pill suicide or possibly like, like that he was slipped those by somebody killing him. Uh, later ruled to be natural causes. Crazy that he caused all that mayhem, became the FBI's public enemy number one, and then got to live out his golden years in Spain as a successful uh, author of sorts. And uh, yeah, with the last member of the Barker Carpus gang dead, I, I guess we're done with today's lengthy Time Suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. So that's the tale of the Ma Barker gang. Man, what a, what a journey. Uh... Yeah, at least that's a tale that can be condensed in less than two hours. There, there's, uh, but there really actually isn't a lot more meat to it than that because Ma didn't keep a diary, neither did her boys. Carpus was the only one to really give an inside account of what happened, and, and he wouldn't do that till many years later. And, and he'd write mostly about, you know, his life and about, you know, just uh, details regarding individual crimes he committed with the Barker Carpus gang. But uh, he didn't really dive into, like, the relationship between Ma and the Barker boys. I did watch an interview he gave before he died after he was released in prison, uh, long after the Barkers were dead. And he, and he claimed that Ma was just a country bumpkin who liked listening to hillbilly programs on the radio, doing jigsaw puzzles, called her a, a, a holy roller, claimed she never even read the newspapers, claimed she knew that they were all criminals, obviously, but didn't participate at all directly in any of the crimes or killings. And after being, you know, released, after all the Barkers, you know, uh, been they're long dead, I don't know why he would lie about that. I don't know who he'd have to protect. Uh, he, he does seem like a very candid person in the interview overall, just admitting to having no remorse over his crimes. Uh, doesn't consider himself much of a tough guy or that he was much of a tough guy. Did say, you know, that uh, that others had attributed 14 killings to him over the course of the robberies. And he did not admit to that being a sure thing or did not deny it. it seemed like he was just not uh, admitting it fully because, you know, you want to incriminate himself. So do I think Ma was a was the mastermind? No, I, I don't. I uh, no witness ever puts her again as being present during an actual robbery. She wasn't active in that way, and and no criminal who ever encountered the gang ever referenced her as being part of any of the planning. Uh, not once. Uh, only Hoover and the feds pushed that narrative. Uh, I also don't think she was anything close to some sweet old lady. Uh, I don't think she was uh, innocent by any stretch of the imagination. In, in, in a way, 
she did kind of mastermind the crime. She masterminded, you know, years before they were committed. You know, uh, when she first glorified previous bank robbers to the point that her sons also glorified them and then enabled them greatly to get going in their criminal careers. You know, uh, she traveled with them. You know, according to accounts, she went out and lived it up alongside them in Reno and other places with other known, you know, criminals. She seemed she seemed very comfortable amongst the criminal element, and uh, she seemed very happy to to spend her her share of the blood money. So, actual mastermind, no. Good mom, innocent citizen, uh, also no in my book. And and now that her tale has been told, it is time for some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one. The FBI estimated that the Barker Carpus gang stole a, a total of $1.5 million, which is the equivalent of $28 million in 2018 dollars. That's a lot. A lot of money. Uh, number two, all four of the Barker boys met a violent death, as did Ma Barker. They might have accumulated some interesting uh, tales during their lives, but man, they, they paid uh, a big price for those tales in the end. Number three, Creepy Carpus did not meet a violent death. Uh, after all that, he got to die as a free man, chilling out in Spain, no less. But he also did serve the longest sentence anyone ever served in Alcatraz, uh, Alcatraz's history, 26 years. So he didn't exactly lead an aspirational life. Number four, highly unlikely that Ma Barker was the active mastermind of the Barker gang. There's no evidence whatsoever that that was the case. Much more likely the invention of J. Edgar Hoover to ease public concern over her violent demise. However, she did raise four criminals, four for four. Uh, you know, one guy, you know, <laughs> he uh, he cleaned up his act, you know, right before the end. But if he would have lived much longer, who knows if he would have uh, started, you know, committing more crimes himself again. At the very least, enthusiastically enabled her boys as they pursued cop killing, bank robbing, human shield using careers as des- uh, depression era gangsters. So uh, I don't even feel a little bit sad for how she left this world. Number five, new info. Remember Boney M? Do you recall that from the Rasputin suck so long ago? Boney M was a, a 70s Euro-Caribbean funk disco troupe, and they sang that raw, raw Rasputin, uh, Rasputin song. I think they say it, raw, Rasputin. Let's just hear it. Let's, let, a little refresher on that song. Uh, your head's moving to that for sure. You can't, uh, you can't not move when you hear that. Was a huge hit for them, and they and they had another hit that involves today's tale called Ma Baker. I'm not sure why they called uh, her her Baker instead of Barker, but the song is clearly about uh, Ma Barker and her boys. It's very you know like telling the story of their kind of crimes and exploits, and, and, it, and it topped the music sales charts in Germany, peaked at number two in the UK in 1977, behind only Donna Summer's "I Feel Love." And it was the number one song for the year in Belgium for 1977. So, so check this shit out. This is Ma, Bar- Ma Baker, excuse me, by Boney M. Ma Baker. She knew how to die. And that's, that's all for today's top five takeaway. Time suck. Top five takeaways. So the Ma Barker gang fully sucked. A lot of crime to uh, to suck today, but we, but we fit it all in our mouths. 
I think. Man, lot, lots to get through. A lot of info today. Uh, big thanks to the Time Suck team once again for, uh, you know, helping me crank out these uh, these episodes, these big sucks on in, in, in a short time frame, in a short amount of time. You know, <laughs> all, all, never more than a week to get the info all together, digested, and, and sent back to you guys. Uh, Jesse Dobner, Harmony Velikamp, Reverend Dr. Josh Krell, Alex Dugan, the Bitelixer team, Danger Brain, Eric Radiker, Queen of the Suck, Lindsey Cummins. Huge thanks once again this week to Bojangles Research Department OG Heather Rylander for doing a bang-up, shoot-em-up job on the Ma Barker Suck. I hope, I hope uh, she liked it. I hope she enjoys this because this topic was also Heather's idea. Uh, Bojangles, Nimrod, Lucifina, all pleased. Lucifina, uh, she loves uh, Creepy Carpus and the Barker Boys. She found him sexy as hell. Uh, coming up next Monday, we're uh, you know going across the Atlantic, going to check in with the Knights Templar. Uh, and if I'm saying that wrong right now, I'll figure it out for next week. Maybe it's Templar. Maybe it's both. I, I feel like uh, looking into that a long time ago, I feel like uh, both ways are acceptable. Uh, but anyway, you space lizards should feel confident that I'm going to do this topic justice. Since according to Ike's psychic, Carol Clark, uh, there's a good chance that I was a, one of the Knights Templar uh, in, a, in a previous life. The Knights, I'm going to say, I'm going to go with Templar for the rest of today. The Knights Templar was a large organization of devout Christians with a mission to protect European travelers visiting sites in the Holy Land. Uh, they, and they carried out many a brave military operation. They were, they were wealthy, powerful, mysterious medieval order. They fascinate historians, uh, have for, for centuries. You know, tales of their financial acumen, their military prowess, their work on behalf of Christianity still circulates throughout the modern culture. Uh, after Christian armies in 1099 captured Jerusalem from Muslim control during the Crusades, groups of pilgrims from across Western Europe started visiting the Holy Land, and the Knights Templar organization were, were created to protect them from being robbed and killed as they crossed through Muslim-controlled territories during their journey. Around 1118, a French knight created a military order along with eight relatives and acquaintances calling themselves the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon, and this morphed into the Knights Templar. Uh, the group developed a reputation as fierce fighters during the Crusades, driven by religious fervor and uh, forbidden from retreating unless significantly outnumbered. They built numerous castles, and uh, fought and won battles against a lot of times much larger armies. And their fearless style of fighting became a model for other military orders. And uh, they became incredibly wealthy and powerful at their height, operating outside of the jurisdiction of whatever nation they happened to be in. They were like a nation unto themselves. And the non-combatant members of the order formed as much as 90% of the order's members, uh, managed a large economic infrastructure throughout uh, Christian Europe developing innovative financial techniques that were uh, an early form of banking. Really, they kind of built their own uh, corporation, kind of like the world's first multinational corporation with their uh, roughly 1,000 fortifications across Europe and the Holy Land. And, uh, and some people believe they went underground after Pope Clement V dissolved the order in 1312 and that they still exist in some form today. So many mysteries. You know the idiots of the internet. At the very least, it's going to be fucking dynamite. Lots of suck on. Back to medieval Europe. Uh, I'm very excited. And quick note before we move on to updates, get help if you're feeling low. Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade, two more high-profile suicides this last week. There are probably others I didn't even hear about. Don't wait to get help. Call 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Uh, call that number if you're even remotely entertaining the idea of suicide. Do not send yourself into Nimrod's butthole. And now it's time for Time Sucker Updates. Updates 
Get your Time Sucker update. Time Sucker Jimmy Sherman writes in with a direly needed pronunciation update. These will never go away because no matter how hard I work, uh, my brain will not cooperate with pronunciations. There's a fairly common word I've been uh, butchering on a regular basis for decades. Here's the knowledge Jimmy shares saying, dude, <laughs> I love just hearing the frustration. Dude, I've let it slide about five times now. It's not posthumous. It's posthumous. Yeah, posthumous. Uh, as far as like, you know, something that like a, like a posthumous publication, uh, something published after somebody dies. Uh, weird word I know. Go to dictionary.com. Click the speakerphone icon after you search uh, this word. It will pronounce this and uh, all of the non-proper nouns you struggle with. And by the way, I do that. I do do that, you guys, just so you know. But uh, hearing it a few times and then memorizing it forever, man, that is a fucking struggle for me. I can listen to it a few times, but but also, like, who can do that? Who can just be like, oh, okay, that's I'll, I'll listen to it one time, and now I say it that way forever. If you are, good for you, you fucking genius robot. But um, so hopefully I'm saying it right now. But but, but you guys, you time suckers, go to dictionary.com if you are struggling. And just, yeah, you, you put the figure of the word. There's a little speaker icon, and it's posthumous, I believe, is how I'm saying it correctly. Uh, so thank you, Jimmy. Uh, ben uh, Epstein sends in the next update. This is an important safety announcement regarding sharks and dicks. He says, hey, mother sucker, hear this. I've been listening for your podcast to your podcast for almost a year now. I still remember when my rock climbing guide, Stephen, opened my eyes to the suck. Well, I re-listened to your Megalodon episode today, scrolled through to the news. Remember your fear of the ocean, especially one involving sharks, the one about getting your dick and balls ripped off? That happened to a Brazilian teen yesterday, June 4th. I now would not swim in Brazil. Or uh, Just letting you know, keep on sucking. Uh, by the way, I'm loving, maybe I'm the problem. Well, thank you, Ben. Glad you're enjoying the new album. I actually just spoke to Romanus Records today about the vinyl release of Maybe I'm the Problem this summer. I'm pumped. Uh, and yes, tragically, a Brazilian teen did just die the death I am possibly most afraid of. His cock and balls bitten off by what uh, they think to be a tiger shark off the coast of Brazil. Holy shit. Jose Ernesto de Silva, de Silva was swimming near the city of Recife when he was attacked by the shark. Uh, yeah, bit his dick off, bit his balls off, bit uh, uh, enough of his one of his legs off that they had to amputate it shortly before he died. Died of uh, basically his heart gave out after all the blood loss and shock and trauma. Uh, man, careful in the water, careful in the water. Sadly, lifeguards were in the middle of telling him to come in closer to the shore when he was attacked because they had just spotted some sharks in the area he was swimming. Damn it. Uh, next up, an important point raised by time sucker Trent Bates about the government's ability to examine our DNA and use it for uh, various purposes in reference to my opinion about this uh, in last week's Golden State Killer Suck. Dear Dr. Reverend Time Suck Fuck, <laughs> I'm writing to you about the DNA crime fighting that you were so enamored by in the Golden State Killer podcast. In the edits of the internet section, you were immediately dismissive of concerns about loss of DNA privacy with the old adage of, if you have nothing to hide, then it doesn't matter. What a poor rebuttal. Obviously, helping crime enforcement find killers is great, just like how domestic spying is great for finding terrorists. And Facebook's targeted advertising is great for getting products to consumers. It's the unintended uses that make others and myself worry about this brave new world we are living in. Great literary reference. Uh, the most immediate fear is that I have is that insurance companies may be able to use information that a far-flung family member has added to a random website to find medical faults and charge clients more. Maybe I'm paranoid. Maybe I've read too many dystopian novels, but I'm not as starry-eyed about this technology as you are. Technology doesn't often grow as we think it will. Who would have guessed that Facebook ads could have greatly affected a presidential election back when the site debuted? Uh, also, update in an update, the poem Ozymandias was written by Percy Shelley, not his wife, Mary. Uh, 
Uh, Brian Cranston is Walter White has a great reading of this poem. Thanks for all the suck. Nimrod's apostle, Trent Bates. Well, thank you, Trent. And you raise some great points. Thanks for clearing that up about uh, Ozymandias. Uh, while I do like the use of DNA in regards to more accurately catching the correct perpetrators of crimes and catching more of them, yeah, other uses could be terrible uh, for this technology. And, and new legislation will be needed to, uh, you know, to protect us, even though it still won't every time. Somebody will use this stuff, unfortunately, for you know uh, nefarious kind of ends, which you just can't avoid. But I'm, I'm in the mind of, I don't want to like not create things and not go down new avenues because people might use it in a bad way if it definitely will help things in a good way. It's like, you know, we can't control. It's kind of like that artificial intelligence debate, you know, like, well, how can that be used down the road against us? You know, I feel like we just kind of, we just got to figure that shit out as it comes in a lot of cases. Um, because I don't want to just stop progress and stop evolution because some bad things might happen. And, uh, you know, and, and on the flip side of what you're saying about people getting charged more for medical care, because, you know, they could, use their familial familial DNA to find out they have significant health problems. Couldn't they also uh, get a lot cheaper care if they don't have a history of genetic illnesses? I mean, it's tricky, right? You know, eventually, I mean, couldn't genetic screening possibly make things more fair for both company and customer where, you know, it need to be regulated to do so. But just like it's not someone's fault that they have uh, a genetic predisposition to something that's going to require a lot of treatment and can be very expensive to treat, it's, it's also not the company's fault. Like whose burden is that for the care? I mean, doctors need to be paid. Scientists need to be paid for making advances. Uh, I feel like that side of the argument doesn't get brought up where it's like, yeah, that would suck. You know, if you got charged more because they found out through some genetic screening that you were going to have certain disease. But it's not just like it's not your fault that you have the disease. It's not anyone else's fault either. It's not the insurance company's fault. It's not the medical establishment's fault. I don't know, tricky issue. Uh, not sure how to handle it fairly. That, that, that The insurance whole fucking world deserves its own suck or several. Uh, but thank you for, for bringing up that point and making me think, making us all think. Uh, cool Golden State Killer, last one today, uh, comes in from Cameron uh, Hageman. Uh, he says, uh, I just remembered that on the Charles Manson episode, you mentioned um, Corcoran State Prison. It was hilarious how you pronounced it. I bet I pronounced it Corcoran or Corcoran. I don't know. Oh, no, I said Corcoran. Oh, just, uh, and then you say it's pronounced Corcoran. Well, fuck, who would know that though, the way it's spelled? Corcoran. Okay, so anyway, it's Corcoran. I just got married about a month ago and her, uh, my wife's father is a sergeant at Corcoran. Uh, the Golden State Killer could very well end up there if he's convicted. Thought that was a cool fact. Anyway, keep sucking. Uh, that is cool, Cameron. Thank you. Uh, thanks to all of you for your messages you send in each and every week. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. All right. Have a great week, everyone. Uh, maybe one of these days I will uh, actually make through an episode and pronounce every word correctly. How You know what? If that happens, I feel like that has to be the last episode of Time Suck. That's when I'm like, all right, I, fucking, I got it now. Thanks, guys. Have a great life. Uh, don't, don't race for the state line. If you rob a bank, uh, it's not going to help you. They can keep pursuing you now. Just uh, don't rob a bank at all, actually. Uh, focus instead on just uh, continuing to keep on sucking. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.